This episode is brought to you by Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. What does it do? Feels CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. I've been using Feels in the evenings for the past few weeks. It's super easy to take. I just place a few drops of Feels under my tongue, wait for 30 seconds, and swallow. And it's really helped me unwind and relax before going to bed. I sometimes have a hard time turning my brain off in the evenings, especially at the end of a long workday editing the podcast. And Feels helps me wind down and rest my mind. And I have definitely noticed an improvement in my sleep as well, which is a huge win. In short, Feels is a better way to feel better. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash nugget and you'll get 50% off your first order and free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash nugget to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash nugget. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training for free. So you can download the app right now and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. Instead of 75 workouts you get with the free version, you will have access to over 200 workouts and progressions. Secondly, with Crimped Plus, you can create your own training plans right there in the app. And finally, you'll unlock a collection of skill templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. Want to improve your finger strength or get more flexible or conquer one-arm pull-ups? Well, guess what? There's a skill template for each of those things and many more that will guide you through the process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own has never been easier. And finally, this episode is brought to you by FizzyVantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. FizzyVantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Foltz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing. They are all using FizzyVantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I am obsessed with getting stronger fingers. I'm actually in a training cycle right now, and I wanna make sure that I'm giving my body all of the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage yourself, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Jesse Firestone. Jesse is an elite boulderer, having climbed V12 and having flashed V10. He is a climbing coach 
and he is a climbing philosopher of sorts. I actually think that title fits Jesse very, very well. Jesse is a good friend of mine from Oregon. We both lived in Bend for many overlapping years, and Jesse was my primary climbing partner at Smith Rock for a year or so, and we've done various other climbing together here and there. And Jesse's just awesome. He's one of my favorite people to talk to. He's one of the geekiest and most thoughtful and insightful climbers I know, and I always learn something when I talk to Jesse. So yeah, we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Jesse was very prepared and brought a lot of notes, and I think you'll find this one packed full of nuggets. If you liked my episodes with Emil Abrahamson and Martin Keller, I think you will definitely like this episode. And I want to share a couple notes about it before we dive in. The first one is that we talked quite a bit about Jesse's performance pyramid. And this is something that he created to try to better understand the different non-physical factors that affect our top performances. And we kind of dove right into talking about it without giving a tremendous amount of context. That's my fault. So I think it'd be helpful for you guys to see it if you are interested in getting a visual. And I put the the visual for it in the show notes for this episode. So you can pull it up right there and you can also find it on Jesse's Instagram at Coach Jfire on Instagram. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. So yeah, I recommend checking that out before listening to this conversation. And the second thing I want to mention is that this is one of those conversations that really got better and better as we went on. I really thought the second half of this conversation was especially packed full of nuggets And I think many of you will find them helpful. So stick with this one. I promise you won't regret it. All right, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Jesse Firestone. All right, so Mike etiquette, yeah, it's like hold your chin, yeah, fist with fist width or closer. I'm gonna regret doing all those cleans earlier today. You gonna get pumped? Yeah, <laughs> God, so many strong climbers complain about getting pumped holding a microphone. Dude, I'm so weak at anything that's not actual rock climbing. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Okay. Um, well, should we start with my notes or your notes? <laughs> Between the two of us, we have three pages of notes. It's your podcast, man. Where do you want to start? You want to ask me what I had for breakfast? <laughs> sure, actually. I had the same thing I have every day. I had yogurt and fruit and granola and a lot of coffee. Okay. I was ready for that one. I studied for that question. <laughs> By eating the same thing yeah. every day and not having <laughs> to think about it? Nice. Yeah. Um, that is interesting because you and I have talked a lot about food over all the years, so... Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about that. Um, no, the first thing I want to ask you is about the considerations that you were thinking about when you set up your home wall, because you and I are sitting in your garage right now, staring at your very beautiful Woody. Oh, thank and you. And I got to climb on it the other day. And uh, every Woody's different. What were some of the things that felt important to you when you were setting this up in your garage? Yeah, that's a great question. You notice the thing that I think is the most important to me, which is my home wall compared to most home walls is covered in good holds. Yeah, there's jugs everywhere, like comfy, nice jugs of all shapes and sizes all over the wall. Maybe not what people would expect for somebody who 
like tries to climb at the level that I do, but it works really well for me. So that was really important. Can um, you elaborate on that? Why is that? I mean, aside from obvious things like warming up. Yeah. Like, wow, I can warm up on this wall. This is so Yeah, nice. war warming up. And I think it makes it easier to, to like vary the style of climbing. Like a lot of home walls are just like savage crimps, savage down pulling crimps on every single T-nut. Yeah. <laughs> and like you can really only do a couple things on that wall versus on this, like I can do big moves. I can like climb really slow and train lock-offs. I can warm up really well, obviously. I can do circuits. If I feel like trashing my skin, I can do circuits on the jugs. There's just more variety. And I also have a lot of like big open hand holds, but that's just because I like that style of climbing a lot. Mm, and so it's yeah. important to me to train that and not just crimp. Yeah, that makes sense. I can like, I can see, I'm just looking at the wall right now. I can like see your uh, affinity for granite and, <laughs> and slopers and things like that, just from the way that you've laid it out with big, yeah. big holds here and there. Yeah, like whole volumes that were built to accommodate <laughs> slopers <laughs> so they'd be at a good angle for this wall. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what that I was like. I want this to be like a hard jug. <laughs> yeah but you've yeah you've got savage crimps mixed in too it's really i really like it it's really well thought out wall thanks it's fun to climb on yeah this is kind of this is a little bit like fun, funereal actually is that a word <laughs> it is Funerally? Now, yeah yeah we're, because we're mourning the loss of yeah yeah because the wall's going away in like soon a week or something because you're moving because we're moving okay. yeah but it's been great. Yeah. And shout out Johnny Duke. Our friend Johnny Duke built this wall. Um, master woodworker. Nice. COVID special from Johnny Duke. Nice. So I don't want to talk about this home all the entire podcast, but the plywood holds that you made, you've got some thick plywood pinches and I can tell that you shaped them yourself. Um, they're a little rough, but that's, that's cool. They've got like nice dimples and like sweet spots and texture and stuff. Where did you find plywood that thick? Like I'm looking at like a four inch thick oh, yeah, pinch. So they're, they're glue ups. Okay. So it's actually all scrap wood. All the volumes and all the plywood holds are scrap wood from the wall. Okay. It's sandy ply. It's what it's called, S-A-N-D-E. And uh, you just, you cut the plywood roughly into the shape you want and then you glue it together with like really industrial glue. And then you leave it like overnight clamped and it becomes like, the, the glue is stronger than the plywood basically. So okay. it never rip apart. And then I use like a, you know, shaping disc to, to get a cool shape. A shaping disc. Yeah. What is that? Uh, like a, um, an angle grinder. Okay. With like a, you know, has like a, kind of looks like a medieval weapon. It's like <laughs> clothing and it spins uh -huh. at 10,000 RPM and you're like, okay, don't cut your finger off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they make, makes cool holds um, for sure. Yeah, that's an that's that's good beta. That's an affordable way to make really cool pinches and holds and stuff because holds are probably the most expensive part of having a home wall. For sure. I think if you just had a if you just had a rip saw, like a skill saw, mm. you could make those holds too. Okay. As long as you can cut an angle, you don't need like an angle grinder. So nice. Super affordable. Super good. Anything Love else? It. Any other considerations that were that things that felt important to you when you were putting this wall together? Because this was your like exclusive climbing zone for for two years basically during covid right yeah pretty much this and climbing outside became like all of my climbing mm -hmm. i've probably been to the gym like a dozen times in the last two years mm -hmm. like maybe maybe 15 but not more than that um so steep i think is the only other thing we didn't hit what angle is it it's 40 okay 
I think the next wall is going to be 45. Why is that? Because the only reason people go 40, I think, is because that's like what the moon board is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> true. It's kind of like it's kind of like Spinal Tap, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it goes to 40. Yeah, but this one goes to 45. <laughs> nice. Cool. And then you, I think you started to say skin friendly. Yeah, the wood holds are, are good for the skin for sure. Got it. Okay. But I kind of like to get my skin a little bit. Yeah. Totally. When I had a when I had my own home wall years ago, I had um, a big set of I think they were like the Entrepris Super Tweaks. They're like really sharp, fractured, coarse foam, so they felt like granite crimps basically. Yeah. And training on those a lot, you know, mixed in with other more skin friendly climbing, I think was like doing that and then going straight to Bishop. That was awesome. Yeah. Prep for for hard outdoor crimpy bouldering. Dude, it's so important and like. I don't think it's understated. I think people know about it, but uh, learning how to deal with your skin because everybody's so different in that department, I think. Like everybody has different bodies and, and it's it's different for all the moves too. But when it comes to skin, I feel like it's really, really individualized, like what you have to do to get yourself in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And that's totally different climbing around here the way I condition my skin versus like the way I would condition my skin if I was going to try to get ready to go to Bishop. Like that's a high pressure skin conditioning scenario <laughs> for me because I don't do well in the desert. So like going to Joe's or going to Bishop or going to Waco, if I had a short trip, like I'd be really stressed about my skin for a couple weeks before the trip for sure. <laughs> I love it. No, I, you were speaking the same language. I'm just, I mean, I, we could, let's not go into that. We could, we could talk for two hours about how you prepare for Bishop with your skin, but um, I'm just kind of laughing because uh, I just remembered that you were the person that got me to start wearing dishwashing gloves. Oh. <laughs> I remember, because I always got, like we were climbing together at Smith at the time, yeah. and I would always get crease splits, which yeah. is so annoying. Because yeah. then you have to tape it, and then like any kind of open hand, pockety, dishy sort of hold, like it just, yeah, um, it sucks. And and uh, I don't know, I was probably bitching about it to you one day, and somehow it came up that I was doing dishes without gloves on and the, the look that you gave me was <laughs> like will will never be forgotten it was just like this yeah like this look of utter disbelief yeah it's isn't it crazy that's not like the foreword of like dave mcleod's nine out of ten climbers book or something like how could you make it that far without without knowing to wear dish gloves <laughs> and it actually was a game changer like that's the thing is that we i lived with roommates <clears throat> we didn't have a working dishwasher so we were all hand washing our dishes and using the dishwasher as a drying rack. So I was probably doing more soapy, like sudsy hot water dishes than most people. But yeah, um, it just, I don't know. I just didn't think it was, it could truly be that important. And it was totally game changing. Also, I kind of stopped climbing and trying to trying to climb 514 at Smith around the same time. Mm, so that helps. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. helps the skin. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't truly know. Yeah. But it, yeah, the dishwashing gloves is good beta for sure. Nice. There's the other, the only, the other, um, like big skin, what would you say? Like life hack, which mm-hmm. I, I hate that phrase. But the other thing that I think comes up sometimes is, um, people just put too much stuff on their skin. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a little bit more of like a beginner thing that I see people do on trips, but they're like climbing multiple days in a row and they're like around the campfire and they're slathering their skin in like all these products because they're just desperate, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to learn, and I, you obviously you obviously were not doing that at Smith, right? But at Smith, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's another thing where people have, you know, I, 
they come to me and ask me because their skin is taking a beating and they're like, I keep putting all this stuff on it. What do I do? And I'm like, stop putting all that stuff on it. Hmm. And for some people that is actually better because they're thinking that they're like applying skin to their skin, right? But they're not, they're applying oil to it. <laughs> I think you just need a little bit of something that works for you and then like let the anxiety go and like let the thing do its job. Yeah. Don't keep applying it every 20 minutes. Okay. Because I've had people come to me and be like, dude, that, that was all I needed was just to stop putting stuff on it. That makes sense. That, that's interesting. How much of it is just people learning how to climb sustainably both with energy and with skin because that's such a big yeah. beginner mistake or, or i don't know i don't even know if that's the right way of saying it but you're just young and you're stoked and mm -hmm. you just climb every single day and destroy yourself and i think it's a very natural part of progressing up the grade scale where you have to start thinking about tactics and strategy and rest days and yeah. con conserving skin and things like that but yeah that's sort of the theme that a lot of those things fall into and that, that the applying too much skin product falls into as well is you can't climb too much and then like add something else to make it better. Like if you climb okay. too much and you get your shoulder gets tweaked, you, you can't like add strength training on top of that to make it better. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have yeah, to like, totally. It, it, you have to like pick the thing that you're going to do. Like uh, if your shoulder gets hurt, you're probably going to want to strength train, but you can't like go home and like, you know, make it better by strength training that day. Right. It's just like, you can't add something to it. Totally. At that point, right? That's so obvious, but it's so, it's such a common mistake. And I'm just like laughing at myself right now because I'm thinking about my first finger injury mm -hmm. and the first several weeks of that, like when I was in denial and hadn't really taken proper time off and didn't know how serious the injury was. <clears throat> those first few weeks were like, me buying cranberry juice and like me buying KT tape or whatever and just yeah. trying this and that. Like how do I make Obsessing. This? Obsessing and like yeah. adding little things that would magically help the swelling go down. But it's just nitpicking. It's not actually addressing the root cause at all. And the root cause is? Well, in that case, I was already injured and I needed to rest and let the tissue heal and then remodel it. Yeah. And if there, if there hadn't been a traumatic injury, I would say usually the root problem is climbing volume, mm. right? Like people are trying to tack other stuff on and the problem is they're climbing too much. You can't climb too much and then add something else on top of that to like make the problem better, right? Yeah, if you have a traumatic injury, then you obviously are going to stop climbing probably a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah. I love it, man. We just got right into it. Um, this, is a, this is a fun opportunity for me because I... One of the things at the top of my notes list here is to ask you about how you started climbing. And you, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago and you talked about how lucky you were to have met the people that you met when you started and for getting into developing and root setting and things from the get-go and how that shaped your climbing. And as much as, as long as we've known each other and as much as we've climbed, I don't think I've really heard much about your early climbing. I think when I met you, I think you were all, already climbing like v11 and um i think some of our early conversations were about like me wanting to know how the hell you had managed to climb some of these things in leavenworth that i really wanted to climb so yeah take me back to how you started climbing and a few of the things that you feel grateful for in retrospect that really helped shape your climbing and set you in a in a good direction okay um well i'm very obsessive to tie back to what we were talking about a minute ago. And I've always been really, really obsessive. It's a huge part of my personality. And before I got obsessed with climbing, I was really obsessed with video games. 
to the point that it like actually kind of derailed some parts of my life <laughs> pretty significantly. Yeah. Um, and I, I basically was at my breaking point cause I was in a pretty bad place. Um, you know, socially and physically and like emotionally. How old were you? Uh, probably 20. Okay. Maybe 19 okay. around there. Um, and I, I was just like, fuck this, I'm done. And I, I quit basically like turned my computer off, you know, like cold Turkey basically. And, uh, my buddy at the time, my roommate, my college roommate at the time was like, there's a little climbing gym in this racquetball court. You know, I'm going to go down there. He was like a wrestler and he was super physical and cool guy. And, um, he was like, do you want to go with me? And I went with him and I just immediately started climbing like five days a week. <laughs> just, it just completely replaced the video gaming. Wow. Um, and yeah, for those first like couple months, I was probably going like several hours a day for like, like I would only not go if there was like some other thing that I had to go do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Climbing way too much, but obviously, you know, <laughs> you survived, worked, worked out. Yeah. I feel um, like most people can get away with that in the very first stages. Yeah, you, know? you don't even notice when you're 19. Right. Yeah. And also you're like mostly climbing on pretty good holds, you know, like it's, yeah. I have a distinct memory of taking a day off for whatever reason, I don't remember. And then the next day, I think I, I left town, I got back to town and we all got together and watched First Ascent. You remember that movie? Yeah. And I, I had never seen a climbing movie before. Yeah. So we watched that at the house and one of my friends at the time had a key to get into the racquetball court and it was like 9 p.m. And, and we were all like salivating. We were like, dude, we have to go climb. And we all went to the, like this group of people. We all went to the gym. We all sent like everything in the gym that we hadn't sent because we were just so psyched, you know? Uh, and I remember being like, oh my God, I rested yesterday. Like, wow. I, that's why I feel so good. And this yeah. is probably like six months in the climbing or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's good, so good fun. Times. I don't want to, I don't want to derail you, but, um, yeah. uh, so I, my first climbing film was King Lines nice. and that blew my mind of course. But I was just thinking about, um, I think it was probably, it was probably my first year of climbing at Western climbing at the gym. There was a comp. And I was climbing like in the beginner, like V2, V3 category, whatever. I was a freshman in college and I was just staying up way too late and not ever sleeping enough. And I overslept and almost like missed check-in for the comp, but I actually got like a full night's sleep. Okay. <laughs> and I just climbed awesome at the <laughs> comp. And that was, that was my comparable like idiotic light bulb moment of like, oh, I actually like slept more than six hours last night yeah you learn the really big lessons today learn the big lessons really early yeah that's hilarious um it is funny to have this conversation and talk about that in my like dingy crowded garage with all this stuff in here because it does kind of remind me of that racquetball court i think oh, I, really? I think i love it for that reason too nice you know? yeah because i you know if you if you plotted my climbing that racquetball court was obviously like the steepest improvement probably for you know the first year or two mm -hmm. just like starting and then this has been like a you know not a not like that one but it's been an uptick yeah for sure so i i love it in that way because i'm just like oh i'm gonna like get it done in here mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know this is where the this is where it happens basically um, yeah so the next thing you asked me was like you know some of that stuff that i feel grateful for mm -hmm. and the era after the the college gym is the rogue rock gym in southern oregon where i met all kinds of really cool people. I was super lucky to meet the headsetter there at the time, Joey Jansen, and then my friend Logan Carr, who's like 
an organ badass. I mean, you know, he's mm -hmm. like, he's super under the radar, but he's a complete badass. Um, I was climbing with those guys in my first like two years of climbing. Wow. And like, you know, we would go like down to crags in California and Logan would like onsite a 13A and they'd be like, go top rope it. And it would, I would just look up at this thing and just be like, are you kidding me? Like this is, that was probably a few years into climbing or something. I just got so many interesting experiences, right? And because Joey was a root setter and they were both sport climber and boulderer, they both love to go outside and like brush stuff mm. and, and just find new, new climbs to do. And all that stuff just seemed normal to me. Mm. So I got to explore all these cool perspectives and like cool lenses to view climbing through. So now I'm like, I look at like starting in the, just in the gym in a city and just bouldering. And I'm almost like, oh man, you're only doing like 10% of it. Yeah, wow. You know? So I feel super grateful that I had people to kind of like mentor me and show me those things really early on. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely shaped me and it taught me to take opportunities when they come, when your friends are like, do you want to go do whatever? Like I didn't know what anything was. So I would just be like, Cecilville, all right. Yeah, that sounds cool. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, my first invite, my first climbing trip was to Bishop on a winter break. I was like, what's Bishop? You know, yeah. just no idea. Just, I, I, it's so fun to think back to that and just like all the discovery. Yeah. Seeing the buttermilks for the first time. <clears throat> um, I have a couple notes written down from our previous conversation that relate to what we just talked about. And I have uh, climbing at night. That was another thing that they did, you know, mm -hmm. chasing yep. better temps, climbing late at night. Yep. And then, yeah, mixing bouldering and sport climbing. That's really interesting because I wonder if, I wonder if any newer climbers now think that that's not just super obvious. Yeah. But that was similar for me. I remember really identifying as a boulderer and yeah. then really not even knowing that it was like okay to do both. Yeah. Yeah. I always kind of was a boulderer because that driving obsession that I have is like, I need to be able to go do it and I need to not have obstacles to doing it. So if I wanted to go climbing, I needed to just be able to go climbing by myself. I didn't need to like call a friend and like get a blade or something. Mm. And if I had somebody around, I was like super psyched to go sport climber, go bouldering with friends or whatever. But I also spent like so much time climbing by myself and I just became a boulderer by necessity. Only in the last few years that I realized like you can actually do some, not sport climbing, but you can like prepare sport climbs by yourself, right? Uh -huh. And that was like a yeah. revelation to me. I was like, oh, I could have been doing this the whole time if I had like learned the systems. Yeah. yeah. But I just got sucked into bouldering. So that's what I did. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Anything in retrospect that you would have benefited from if you had done more of it in the early years of your own climbing? Probably resting. Really? Yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, because I, I didn't like notice, but I was for sure doing damage. And that might apply more you know, in, in the like next stage, like my five to 10 year stage or something like that, I probably should have been resting more in that time. But if I had developed the habit earlier then I would have still had it then. Um, I'm not sure what else really, I'm not really much of a regretter. So yeah. I'm like happy with where I am, so. Yeah, I always think that's an interesting question, <clears throat> but at the same time, like basically everyone says the same thing, like, well, I wouldn't really change anything. You know, yeah. but but it's an interesting thought. It's experiment. hard to know. You don't have the counterfactual. Right. Like I can't look at what Jesse would be like if I had sport climbed more. You know uh -huh. what I mean? I only know what I am. So yeah, if I had rested a little bit more, I'd probably just be like, you know, 0.1% stronger or something. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I want to ask you about the Portland chapter because I've been thinking about this and preparing for this conversation, like trying to remember exactly like when I met you. And I, I don't know when, but I think our first interactions were like through Facebook. Yeah. I yeah. Okay. That. Yeah. Um, and I don't even know how I knew who you were. I think I just became aware of you through mutual friends and you were climbing a lot of the things in Leavenworth that I aspired to climb. Yeah. I think you did a couple of V11s that season or something. And I just, I think I reached out and was like, what have you been doing? <laughs> you know? And um, the thing I still remember that that was really novel for me at the time is like, I, I was always such a performance oriented gym climber. Like I wanted to climb everything as efficiently as possible. I wanted to send things. I wanted to be impressive to my friends in the gym and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think you just told me like, you stopped expecting to have fun in the gym mm. and you stopped using any sort of tricks in the gym. Like you stopped heel hooking and toe hooking. You just like made all of the climbing really basic. Yeah. How well am I remembering all that does that <laughs> i mean it it, it kind of rings right? a bell a little bit okay the, definitely the first part because in that that phase when i was climbing in portland i definitely went through some struggles with like when you start climbing the harder problems in the gym you get like slightly ostracized not necessarily like deliberately but you're kind of you know i don't know it's really hard to tell this without feeling like i'm like humble bragging but like you know if you if you walk up to a new set and you like do all the problems in the new set on your first try and your friends are like still trying them mm. well now you have to decide between socializing or going to a different wall right mm. and now now that i'm like older and wiser i'd be like well you repeat the ones that you didn't do, do well and you do a better job on them but i didn't know to do that then you know because now like the social part is important to me and i i recognize that more than i did then but at the time you were like what should I do? And I was like, dude, buckle down. <laughs> you know, I think that was what I was trying to. Yeah. To me. To yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, Cause I've always, that was, especially then I had climbed in Leavenworth for a lot of years. I was always tricking things down, you know, yeah. finding really sneaky beta, like finding, basically finding ways around like basic crimping and finger strength and pulling. It's um, so ironic that I would give you that advice because I, I feel like I do that like 10 times more than you. The trick like, thing? Look, yeah, like look for heel hooks and toe hooks and like knee bars and stuff like that. I yeah. love that style of climbing. Yeah. But I definitely have rec always recognized that pure raw strength is like my weakness. And so I do try to get myself to do that. But I, I can't help but love the the tricks for sure. Mm -hmm. So I was... Uh, and I was a lot more like that at that time. Okay. Yeah. I was I was projecting, I think. Yeah, it was it was all... <laughs> well, you know, you were right. It was all like Leavenworth bouldering for me, which is very featurey, very conducive for tricking things down for sure yeah um <clears throat> it's actually funny to say tricking things down because now i've kept climbing at leavenworth the whole time and now i'm trying like really hard things in leavenworth and guess what they're full of heel hooks and toe hooks mm. so like is it really tricking it down or is that you know it's right. like still useful totally but i know 100%. i know what you mean though i know yeah. what you mean especially like for board climbing i think some people are like no heel hooks which i respect but i don't do it <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, um, I have a whole list of things related to coaching that I want to get to in a minute, but I want to spend a little bit more time on your climbing. And I'd wanted to ask you, what have been some of the other chapters in your climbing and or training that have led to progression for you? Like, are there distinct things that stand out, distinct chapters or strategies that have worked over the years? I guess the 
the stuff that I that jumps to mind that we haven't covered is not long after I got really into climbing, a couple of years, I dropped out of college, moved into my Dodge Neon, and I spent seven months driving around the West climbing. And my abilities and my confidence in myself skyrocketed mm. during that time. I went to Joe's Valley and I flashed a V8 and I had never climbed V7. Whoa. Which obviously was a very easy <laughs> V8. <laughs> but at the time I was like, oh, like I can, I can actually like do this. Like I could be good at this. Yeah. And I climbed my first V9 that year. And then I climbed my second V9 that year. And like right after that trip, I climbed my first V10. Like that was totally revelatory that period. I literally moved out of my place, put my stuff in a storage unit, drove to Walmart, bought a four-person tent at Walmart, put it in the trunk of my Dodge Neon, and drove to Yosemite. <laughs> I was like 22 or 21 <laughs> or something like that. And that was such a good idea. I even even though I got to Camp 4 and there was a group of guys there from Washington, they were like, dude, what is the deal with your tent? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that, was a, that was a great trip and so meaningful. And then... Um, I mean, the phase that I want to talk about after that is the bend phase. Mm. Because after I, after that trip, I moved to Portland, climbed all over there, climbed a ton of stuff in Portland, climbed in Leavenworth a lot during that stage. And then I basically realized that if I didn't get out of Dodge, I was never going to get better. Um, just because of access to... Yeah, and some other like... And I was dealing with like some immune problems and I had just gone through a breakup and I was like, I needed a change. Mm. And we don't have to get into all that stuff right now, but... I decided to move to Central Oregon. And that was a really, really good decision just because there's so much to do here. Um, and yeah, I think I really put a capstone on that in the last year or so. Um, so that's the, you know, that's the phase that I'm like the next most excited about, you know, because I really proved to myself in the last year that I can still like pull rabbits out of the hat basically. Mm. And I think I will be able to for a while, which is cool. Yeah. So thanks, Ben. <laughs> ben, I mean, Ben's an interesting choice. Like I was drawn here because I was totally psyched about sport climbing at the time. Yeah. And I mean, I'd always heard great things about Ben from my dad and it was kind of romanticized and whatever else, the climate was great, <clears throat> but it was really Smith Rock. Like that's why I came here. But you came here really as a boulderer. I mean, uh, I, I knew I, I knew I would climb at Smith some too. And I had okay. been climbing at Smith a lot when I moved here. Okay. I also had good friends who had just moved here, people I knew from Southern Oregon that had just moved here and started like their lives here. Yeah, I wasn't keyed into any particular mode of climbing, but I knew there was a lot of rock here. Mm. And actually those two people I mentioned earlier, they were both here. I knew Logan was here too. Um, and Bend gets like 270 days of sun a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was living in Portland at the time where there were hard boulders that I could be trying, but they were just wet all the time. Got it. And I was basically like, all right, well, this is holding me back. <laughs> I need mm -hmm. dry boulders. I need hard dry boulders. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Or crags. Yeah. Smith Rock turned out to be really, really, really difficult for me. But the bouldering here turned <laughs> out to be really good. So <laughs> it worked out. God. Yeah. I struggle with everything in Central Oregon, I think. <laughs> it might be hard. <laughs> I think it's hard. I think it's just yeah, hard. Yeah, but good. I think the bouldering here is slept on. I don't want to blow it up on the nugget, but <laughs> the hard bouldering here, I think, is good. Yeah. Um, God, there's so many ways, there's so many directions we could go from here. We could talk about some of the highballs you've done here recently. 
But you've got your own page of notes in front of you. What what do you feel excited <laughs> to dig into? I mean, should we pivot to coaching and some of that stuff and come back to more of your climbing or? Sure. Yeah. What do you, you want to do that? I mean, that, that would, we could hit some of the bullet points for sure. I wanted to ask, um, well, actually, when did you get into coaching? Because I think this was, I think this is recent, like since I started this podcast and left Bend. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, I've been coaching clients for over a year, not that long. But before I started doing that, I did a few things. So a couple years ago, I started assessing people and giving them little briefs of what they could work on mm. on the internet. So I did like several hundred of those. Oh, um, wow. And then, and that was just all like to see if I enjoyed it and if I got anything out of it. But I learned a big thing from that, which is that if the people don't come to you, they're a lot less likely to be like to have follow through, right? Mm. So some of them had follow through, but for the most part, it wasn't because it was just like an anonymous interaction. Um, and How then are you I, connecting with these people? Uh, mostly through like social media, like Reddit, okay. Reddit and stuff. And then I, you know, I would have people like you contact me. And it's, it's funny that you did that. And then we turned out to like be good friends and climbing partners. Mm -hmm. But I've had a, a bunch of other people contact me over the years. And I think it's because... Somebody the other day told me that I was the Walmart Andy Lou of the Northwest. What I, does that mean? <laughs> Andy Lou is the guy who puts all the uncut footage of Bishop on YouTube. He's, yeah. like, he's like a really popular climbing footage YouTube. Totally. And I've like always put my uncut footage on YouTube, but of boulders that like nobody, <laughs> nobody was going to do except for the people who were like around, you know? Uh -huh. um, but some of those people who would watch those videos would like ask me training questions like you did. So... I wasn't really coaching, but I was definitely like fielding those questions. Um, and that's how I like realized that it was something I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, it's just so cool to vicariously enjoy other people's climbing success because you can like do it on a rest day. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I have clients who are like going to Rocklands, you know, and I get to be so psyched for them. And it's just so, so cool. Uh, and it, you know, it's a different way to experience it. So. Mm -hmm. Was observing some of your climbing partners and friends part of it as well? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. I wanted to ask you that. So what what are some of the common things that you observed early in your friends that you were climbing with that were sticking points for them? Uh, that like were sticking points. Sticking points. Like, I'll ask another question. What common things hold people's climbing back that don't get talked about enough? Hmm. I mean, for sure these things get talked about. So it's, it's hard to say that they don't get talked about enough, you know? Sure. It's, it's. Cool guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So these, cool. these things don't get talked about enough is like a, that's kind of, that kind of dramatizes it, I think. But I do think that mindset is a big thing that I see climbers struggling with constantly. And specifically when I say mindset, the way that I think about it is how is your ability to stand under the boulder or stand under the root and get into the zone to do the damn thing on command that really like summarizes almost all the rest of it. Cause if you can't do that part, then like, you know, what does it really matter? Mm -hmm. And I, I think of that as emotional regulation too, being really important. That seems to be a place where a lot of people falter, you know, maybe they struggle with anger or frustration or, you know, they, they get down on themselves or they, you know, it's a social thing. They can't perform when other people are watching or they can't perform when they're alone. I think that a lot of people struggle with that. And I think mm. that's a useful thing to learn how to do. Um, so yeah, there, I mean, there's a million, there's a million answers to that question. 
I'll just kind of like grow up around in the dark if we don't target it a little bit more than that. Okay. What were you noticing in some of your close friends that you were climbing with a lot? Um, I mean, again, this is like off the cuff, I would say the mindset thing, I would definitely say like sequencing and visualization seems to be something that I think a lot of people could do better at. Um, just so you're like watching someone try a boulder and they're like doing slightly different beta every time and yeah, or, or they're hesitating for, on forgetting moves. in during an easy move. They're like forgetting where to put their foot and like spending six seconds like looking mm. looking around, or like they look up at the target hold and they haven't moved their foot, mm. and they know instinctually that something's wrong, and then they look back down and move their foot, and it's like not a big deal, right? But it's stuff that should be cleaned up, right? I notice that kind of stuff all the time. I don't know about in my friends. Yeah, that's fine. I, yeah, I. I try not to turn, these days I try not to turn it on. I have to like hold it back. The coaching thing. Yeah, when I'm, when I'm around people that I like respect and care about because, you know, it's fundamentally critical. And mm -hmm. I don't want to be critical of my friends unless they ask me. <laughs> I <laughs> still do sometimes, good. but <laughs> I try to turn it off. That's good. <laughs> um, should we talk about the pyramid? The performance pyramid? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, sure. dig, let's, let's dig into that. So this came from... I don't know if it came from, but I first saw this on your Instagram um, and you just presented your philosophy of performance, like the different pieces of the performance pyramid with the the more significant, larger pieces, the, pe the pieces that are more important at the bottom, obviously, and then working their way up. I think we should st start from the top though, if we're going to start from the top. Yeah, okay. I think so. Yeah. And yeah, let's just do it. Let's let's go into it because I I, I want to talk about it, and I think it's interesting because it's just different. Like it's just a different selection of of skills or bullet points than I think get focused on and, and talked about. So okay, so we can, we can jump into it. Where'd the pyramid come from? Let's start with that. Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, I I just. I spend a lot of time thinking holistically about climbing performance. I really try to be a generalist, like for my uh, for my clients especially, right? And kind of think about, cover all the bases, think about all of it. I don't just do strength training. I don't just do like mindset coaching. I don't just do technical training. Kind of have to do some of all of it. And so I think where this pyramid came from is me sort of sorting them into order. I was like, okay, when I evaluate people and when I climb with people, which things seem to be the things that are the biggest drivers of whether they can get to that like limit performance? And when I just did that sort, this is the pyramid is what came out of it, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the most basic things wound up at the bottom. Um, and I, I, the bigger picture thing of that is like, I, I have this need to try to codify things and try to get them out of my brain and make them make sense. And a lot of that comes out on Instagram as stuff where I'm like trying to directly help people. But to be honest, a lot of it is just me trying to like understand these thoughts and like, mm. Maybe somebody, maybe it makes sense to somebody else and they interpret it in a different way. That'd be useful. But a lot of it is like, my journal is full of crazy <laughs> pyramids and shapes and, <laughs> I love and ideas like that. So yeah, some of them just make it into the real world, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll definitely link to this in the show notes and I'll probably reshare it on Instagram um, after this episode comes out too for people that want to see the visual because it's helpful. It's, I mean, it's just a, a stack of yep. uh, rectangles, but helps to see it. You want me to go through them? Let's do it. Cool. So at the peak is a peak performance. So that's probably going to be something that's really meaningful to you, really memorable. More than likely, it's really hard. And 
in order for the pyramid to really make sense, it kind of has to be a peak performance because you wouldn't necessarily need all of those other things to be as strong if it wasn't, if you're just, you know, going down and circuiting like a, a V2 that you've done a hundred times. Yeah. Um, you would only need some of them. So directly below the peak performance is your strength. And I think some people might take issue with me putting with me putting that so high on the pyramid, but it really, your strength really only matters at the moment that you go to touch the holds, right? Um, I mean, there's other things that factor into it, like capacity and recovery and stuff, but if we're just talking about how much force you can exert in the holds, it, it doesn't happen until you pull onto the wall, right? Um, so people might take issue because we tend to think, especially Americans tend to think of climbing as a very physical sport. We talk about training incessantly, mm -hmm. myself included, pointing at myself here. No, me too. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people would intuitively make the entire base of the pyramid strength. Totally. Yeah. And I, so you put it at the top. I think that, I think that that would be a mistake to put strength at the base of the pyramid, but it is important to recognize that your strength feeds into the other pieces. And as we talk about some of the other pieces, that'll probably make more sense. Um, but as an example, the next layer down is your tactics during the session, right? So that's like what you choose to try, how you warm up, what you eat, how much water you drink, how long you rest between tries, how you manage your skin, all that stuff that happens like during the session, like right before you try, right? And if you're stronger, a lot of that stuff is going to be easier. You'll be able to rest a little bit less or you'll get more tries in the same session, right? So strength plays into all the other pieces. Mm but I still think that it is is right there below the peak performance for me personally. Um, and we can talk about tactics if you want. Maybe let's go through the pyramid. Just touch on Overview them. them sure. And then we can double click on some of them. I, should, I need to chalk up. The mic is like, <laughs> I'm getting sweaty. Um, so session tactics. And then below that is beta selection, uh, which could also be like technique, but I, I really like to think of it as like selecting beta because in this peak performance, um, once you're there, you're not going to like train your technique. You've, you have what you have when you show up to the boulder, right? You might learn something new and then you pick your beta, but you're not going to like open a whole new book of climbing beta. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, the selecting of the movements and then visualizing those movements would be that, that layer. Okay. And then the next one below that starting to get into the like major ones is emotional control. So that's like your ability to focus on the task at hand, your psychological framework, your ability to deal with failure, your ability to deal with anger and frustration, and your ability, like I was saying earlier, to like get into the zone or get into send mode or get into red point mode, whatever you want to call it. That's like that emotional piece. And then below that, you have your logistics and your life circumstances. So that's like your organizational skills. How much time do you have for climbing? How much access do you have for climbing? So like when we talk about me moving to bend to have more sunny days so that I could like climb on boulders more, that's how low that is in the pyramid. And that's why when people move to places where there's more climbing to do, they tend to make really big breakthroughs, right? Mm -hmm. It's not because they're stronger. It's because the, the logistics have opened up. Mm -hmm. And then the piece below that, which is a little bit wooey, but I do think it's really, really important is your identity, um, like who you are as a climber and Another way to put it is the story that you tell yourself about who you are. And that's, that calls back to the part of our conversation where I was saying I was really grateful for starting with the people that I did because it totally shaped my identity as a climber. Mm. Like I believe that I am a, a boulderer and a sport climber and that I can be a root setter and that I can go develop boulders and I can 
go do high balls or I can climb at night or whatever. That's all part of my climbing identity because mm. of the way that I started. It really shapes you, I yeah. think. So that's yeah. why it's on the bottom for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and now if you want to talk about any of them in detail, we can do that too. Yeah. Before we get into some of the specifics, because yes, I want to, like you are one of the most tactical and strategic boulderers I've climbed with. You're so good at like squeezing every ounce of your strength out of the sponge. Thanks. <laughs> you said that on the on the Patreon post too. And I was like, that is the most, that is the nicest way anybody's ever called me weak. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. It's so impressive, actually. You're yeah, so consistent. You. Like you. up to your absolute max, the word I think of with you is consistency. Like you thank seem you. to be able to climb every V9 and 10 out there very quickly. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's exceptions. There always are, but yeah, they're all in Waco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just consistency. You're so good at executing up to like very close to your top end strength. Thank you. Um, but yeah, before we dive into some of the tactics and stuff, what do the people that you work with think when you present this to them? Like what are the, what are the areas where people are resistant and, mm. um, aren't as open to some of the things that are, that you feel are important that you have to talk them into? Like what, does that question make sense? It does, it does. I mean, maybe this is part of the way I understand the pyramid in my head, but the further down you get towards those more base layers, the harder it is to change, Mm. right? It's very hard to change your identity as a climber. So if I have a conversation with somebody and they're like feeling run down, and they're just kind of like not motivated and they, they're, they're not like trusting themselves and believing in themselves as a climber. It's really hard for me to turn that around with like a conversation or with a climbing drill, mm-hmm. right? They need some big shift. And the same thing goes for like logistics and for your emotional regulation. Usually those are like really big, hard things to tackle and yeah. they take a long time. I would say, you know, a good number of the people that I work with have something in that in those bottom three layers that they're working on. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely working on stuff in those layers. Um, and I think any serious climber probably probably is, right? Yeah. We're not all like super willing to admit it, but most of us have something in there that's holding us back a little bit. Totally. I'm, I'm always shocked, not to derail you here, but I'm always shocked at how many people let life circumstances and logistics get in the way of their climbing performance. And of course, there's a lot of, privileges that come with being able to move but i think a lot people a lot of people have a lot more agency to Mm. make changes in their life that would positively positively affect their climbing than they are giving themselves credit for you know like if you're willing to listen to a hundred episodes of this podcast and you think about climbing and training incessantly and you've hired a coach and you live somewhere where you get to climb like 20 days a year on rock you know like one day a weekend like on the shoulder seasons and that's it man, like consider moving somewhere, you know, and and people are very quick to make excuses as to why they can't. And sometimes they're very valid, but sometimes it's just, it, again, it's that story that we are just telling ourselves about why we're stuck in this city or whatever it is. Yeah. Our lifestyles are an investment Mm. and and it's, it's hard to look at all that. It's a sunk cost fallacy. Basically it's hard to look at all that money you've invested in your lifestyle and want to uproot it and go somewhere else. I can't think of, maybe you know, or maybe this has happened to you, but like, I can't think of a single person I know who's a serious climber who's moved somewhere for climbing and not 
been happy about it. Mm. Can you? Like people who move to like Chattanooga or Salt Lake or Bend. Yeah. Like usually the only time those people move away from that place is because they're moving somewhere that's even better. Exactly. <laughs> I was about to say that. I was about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I I think I completely agree with that. But but you're totally right. It's really hard to get people to to come around to it still. I mean, it just takes a it's easy for us to sit here. We've both had phases of our life where we were living in a van, right? So right. we know. Um and we're obviously privileged to have be able to have been able to do that. Right. So but yeah, don't sell don't uh sell yourself short, people listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely possible. And it doesn't have to you don't have to move either. Right. So that that actually I have another list in my notes, which is quantum leaps. Oh, and I love this. Um, and that moving would be a great example of a quantum leap. Mm. Or just going on a really long road trip. Or like trying to get a job where you have, you know, where the, the schedule is lined up better with your climbing schedule or it's lined up better with your friends. Or it leaves you less tired. Mm. Right? The, look for those opportunities where you're like totally going to change your relationship with climbing. And just take those opportunities. I mean, that's so important. And we're on the cusp of moving to Wenatchee and it is, it is 100% me putting my money where my mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh, we have a chance to move to Wenatchee, which is right next to Leavenworth, Washington, which is a climbing mecca. And we were like, oh, this is going to suck. Like, look at all this stuff in this garage. This is going to suck. But it's going to be totally worth it. Yeah. And I have always jumped on those opportunities to make quantum leaps in my climbing. Mm. And I've never regretted it. And I think that's a really big thing for people to look out for to look for those opportunities. Another good example would be uh, like if you have an opportunity to go on like a potentially life-changing trip. Mm. If you know that some friends are going to Australia or Rocklands or they're going to Chattanooga for the winter, something like that that's like, you know, big and crazy to you, like do it. Mm. You gotta do it. You have to do it. No matter how hard you climb, if you have those opportunities, you have to take them. Yeah. Because they, not only do you get the experience and you get to do that thing, but it has a permanent effect on your identity. And then your identity as a climber is like a little bit stronger than it was before. That base. Yeah. I love it, man. Um, anything else with the quantum leaps before we come back to the pyramid? The only, yeah, the other ones that are on here are uh, build a spray wall in your garage. Yeah, that, <laughs> dude, board climbing of any kind, I think, is a quantum leap. But but I think the home wall is like the best yeah. thing. And it's not always the most fun. And that's why people don't always do it or stick with it or whatever. It's, it can be hard to motivate when you're in your garage by yourself. You know, Actually, take... I have a soapbox about this. Okay, great. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you with my soapbox. I was just about to say, like, make sure you, like, make it pleasant to be in your garage. Like, get some lights, maybe paint the board a cool color, like, get, yeah. get a stereo. Music. Or, yeah. Yeah, whatever. But just the focus that you get from getting out of the commercial climbing gym. And, like, I, I was thinking about this actually two days ago because I'm in Bend seeing you, um, seeing some friends. I'm trying to follow a training plan. So, I go to the gym here. I haven't been here. In, I've never been to that gym. It's a new gym. And... Followed my plan for the day, kind of, but like didn't have a great session, you know? And it just, I was thinking about that. I'm like, I don't think I've ever gone to a new gym for the first time and had a great session because I'm too damn distracted. Unfamiliar by environment. all the shiny colors and all the different yeah. things. And I try way too much stuff and I don't just, like I could go in there and 
just go straight to the moon board and have like a really killer session um, or go straight to like a cool hard boulder that's the type of thing I want to work on that day and just camp under it. But I never do that. I yeah. always get, you know, kid in the candy store sort of syndrome and just run around like a maniac climbing too many things. Yeah, gyms are gyms are really good for certain specific things, but I don't think they're always great for training. I think you're right. They're too distracting. Mm. It's like you're there to do, if you're really training, you're there to kind of do a job. And everything in the gym is like trying to prevent you from doing that job. It's just <laughs> so all these true. like, there's like, you know, $10,000 of holds on every wall. Just like, climb me. Yeah. And you're like, no, I have to do this drill. <laughs> there's um, beer on tap. <laughs> yeah, there's beer on tap. Yeah, totally. Ping pong. Uh, so my, uh, my spray wall soapbox is <laughs> for you, Nugget listener. Um, I hear people all the time say that they don't want to have a spray wall in their garage because then they would have to make up problems. Mm. And I, that is so backwards. The mm. point of having a spray wall is you will make up the problems and it is awesome. And you will learn so much about climbing and you will get to express yourself creatively. And if you're not into it, that's really hard, but don't, don't get it backwards. Mm. Setting the problems is a huge part of why it's a good thing. It's not some task that you have to do. And maybe that's because I've also been a root setter. That's like a job that I've had. So I have some experience, but you could get over that hump if you were, yeah. if you were getting your own wall too. Um, and you know, you've, you've set some too. Mm -hmm. it, you learn a lot about movement when you're like, oh, what, like, can I turn this thing? And like, yeah, you just learn really fast. Yeah. So that's a valuable part of having a home wall and, and not like some, some job that gets added. So yeah, I almost always start my sessions on this thing by setting two or three new boulders. Really? Yeah. Yeah, for people listening, so the, you haven't moved any of the holds in like a year and a half, right? So you're just making up new climbs with the, yeah. with the holds that you have. Still adding holds up okay. until like April. And then I was finally like, all right, I should stop putting it. I'm just going to have to take them back down. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, this is great. So we went, you did the overview of the pyramid. We went from the top down and then kind of by accident, we've been like talking more expansively about the things at the bottom and working our way back up. So They're the most important things. Yeah. Um, so the next one going back up, this is the third one from the bottom, is the emotional control. So focused psychological framework, basically like how you get into go mode. Mm -hmm. What are, I don't know, would it be interesting to talk about common mistakes that you see? Or would it be better to talk about cues that help that you found to be helpful as a coach for people who struggle with with this. Yeah, I would probably box. approach it from the approach it from the like cues and ways to okay. improve. Yeah, method. Because um, we all have space to grow there. So I, I don't know that I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not inside other people's heads, so I'm not always qualified to know like what they're thinking. Um, but I do think there are some things that a lot of people can benefit from. And one is something that you've talked about on the podcast a bunch because you've had Ethan Pringle on a bunch and he talks about it all the time, mm. which is breathing. Nice. It's so important. And almost always if I'm having a bad session, I can pay attention to my breath and realize that I'm like holding my breath a lot. Mm. And it could be because I had a stressful day at work or I'm, or I'm just having a bad session or if I'm on a trip and I'm like under a lot of pressure to like get something done, but I'll notice that I'm like just contorting my body and like holding my breath. When I'm on the ground, not when I'm climbing, totally. right? And it's very hard to get out of that, but taking really deep breaths is for sure the the way. Um, whenever I'm catch, whenever I'm like caught up in life stress in general, I find myself 
lately because I've been working on this because of Ethan. Um, I find myself like actually holding my breath a lot going into a climbing day, into a climbing session. I'm like, and I, it's just like, I've been doing this all day. Yeah. I've just been like tense. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that it's so hard to do a good job at something that keeps you alive. And <laughs> you do automatically. Um, yeah. I, I've been doing this, this, uh, this drill or this practice for probably like 12 years or something. I can't even remember where I got it from, but I got it from some training book, which is I sit down under the boulder and I take a bunch of deliberate breaths. Might not be, I might not breathe for five minutes or something if it's like not a huge deal, but if this is a project, I'm going to take a minute mm. and I have like a mantra in my mind. And lately I've been kind of branching out and I'll try a bunch of different mantras, mm. but it's, it's literally the like definition of mantra. It's like a word that I'm repeating to myself and there are no other thoughts in my brain. Like I'm thinking that thing hmm. for like a long time. The word was flow. And a few years ago, I probably would have been even like self-conscious telling you that that was the word, but that yeah. was the word and I'm yeah. fine with it now. Great. Um, so I'll just like breathe and I'll just say flow to myself like 10, 15, 20 times basically. And then I'll like set off on the boulder. Right. And after you do that for a few years, at least for me, it becomes so second nature that you can kind of, your body can go through those motions and you can even be like talking to people, <laughs> you know, but you're still, you're still breathing and you keep coming back to that mantra in your head, but you can maybe like carry on a conversation or something and you still get into send mode. It gets easier is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And now I've been experimenting with like other words or other concepts in that because I'm realizing that flow makes me like really um, smooth, but right. I don't think I get like maximum force production out of it. So if I'm, if I have to try really hard right off the ground, or if I have to like do a scary move, like yesterday, the boulder that we went to yesterday that had that dyno, like I was not telling myself to flow through that dyno. I was like, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to crush that little hold and I'm going to jump off of it. So crush. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I like that. And it that. sounds, it sounds so new agey, but this stuff really, it really does work. Totally. Believe in it. Totally. Yeah. What are some other ones? I'm really curious now. Uh, I have used smooth. I have used fast or like pacing cues. Mm. But I try to keep to just one word. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say probably for like 90% of my like really hard projects, I'm just breathing. And it's more of like the sensation of how I want to climb than like a literal word. Mm. And then I'll, I'll change it up and I'll try like words like crush if I want to like experiment with it. But most of the time I'm just kind of, it all is just like amalgamated into my mindset. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't really have like a name anymore. Okay. Um, but if I do put a word on it, most of the time it's something like flow. Okay. I love that. That's yeah. really we cool. Got, we got kind of far afield from emotional regulation there. Well, no, it's it's part of it. it I mean, that's one of your strategies. Totally. That. Um, yeah. This is an aside, but do you do you meditate? Do you have a meditation practice outside of climbing? Not not really. Yeah. I have I have done it even for like years, but it's not something that I make like a ton of time for yeah anymore um i would probably benefit from it still but it's not like a priority mm -hmm. i do I mean, get a lot of meditation out of climbing right i, I asked that because that is like a short transcendental practice right there like yeah. at the base of the boulder which is really interesting one of the most important things for me in climbing and and this could totally be an emotional regulation strategy too is like if i don't know where i'm at in my climbing or if i'm really struggling on 
a project or even if I'm just like having a really rough training cycle and I don't basically if I'm like I don't know where I am I don't have my feet under me in my climbing I will go climbing alone somewhere that I know I can like bang out a bunch of easy climbing and I'll carry a light pad and I'll take minimal stuff and I'll just go for a few hours and I'll just go circuit boulders with like no agenda and that almost always my next session after that is like really good Hmm. and that's totally like a meditation practice right it just happens to involve like shoes and a pad and stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and that's definitely a valuable strategy for me Um, do you think that's how personal is that for you Um, or do you think that's just something that would be helpful for just about anybody I think everybody should try it. Yeah. I think people are afraid of climbing alone and I don't think they should be. Mm. I think that it will help them to learn how to climb safely and to learn how to access that send mode. Getting into send mode is all about being able to do it in different contexts, right? Yeah. And the more context you practice it in, the better you'll be able to do it on command anywhere. Mm. And climbing alone is really important. Being able to do it in a crowd of bros is also really important. It's totally different. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I don't know how like widely like usable it is, but I definitely think people should give it a try mm. for sure. Let's see here. Is there, if we double click on beta selection, is there anything you want to add to that? Because there's definitely, I definitely have questions about tactics. I want to get to that, but that would, beta selection would be the next one on the list. Yeah, beta selection. So beta selection is just, your ability to figure out what you're actually going to do on the wall. And that includes both all the stuff that you're able to do on the wall and also your ability to read the rock itself, right? Or the plastic or whatever it is and everything in between. And I I like the word selection. I think it's doing a lot of work there because once you've been climbing for a while, you'll realize that there's like many ways to do most things. And it's not about doing it. It's about picking the one that's like going to work the best. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, for you, you climb like V11, like maybe V12 this year. We'll, we'll not, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. We'll see. So if you're trying a V7, you can choose a whole bunch of different ways. Mm. And it, it really is like open to you. And that'll affect like what you get better at and, and all that. But if you're trying a V11 or you're trying a V12 project, the selection is like pass fail. Mm. You need to pick the thing that works. And that's like the crux. But really it's the same it's the same skill. You're just, just picking versus picking out of a bunch of things that you can do versus picking out of a bunch of things that you can't do, hoping to find the one that you can do. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. If someone comes to you and they struggle with that, what are some things that you give them to work on that? Um, yeah, being super open about what they're willing to try, uh, not pigeonholing themselves into a style mm. for sure. Uh, and then if I was working with the person, I would hopefully, I would try to analyze their video. Um, and, or I mean, if I'm really lucky, then I'd get to work with them in person like I do with some people here. And most climbers have sort of their language that they speak on the wall. They're like really fluent in one thing and they want to like go back to that language over and over. And so I just try to get them to speak a different language. It's like, hmm. you know, if they're only ever climbing with both feet on, then I would try to get them to climb with one foot on sometimes. And like learn how to flag and apply proper pressure into the wall and like back flag, front flag, let the leg dangle. There's like a million things to explore. Once you find whatever the pattern is that they really, really want to do. Another big one is like people want to climb front on or they want to twist their hip into the wall. And you can like try to get them to do the other one. Because if you think in these like macro level movement patterns, then 
if you identify a big thing that they're not doing, they'll find a hundred other small things to do mm. that stem off of that. Another big one, is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the pivoting of the torso. So all six like articulations or like angles, right? You can, you can roll, you can yaw, and you can pitch. And <laughs> okay. You need the, to break this down for me and um, probably for a lot of people listening. Gosh, should I hop on the wall and do a, <laughs> do a demonstration? <laughs> so like you can, you can turn your torso into the wall, like you're twisting and reaching. Okay. And I have a post on Instagram that you can put in the, so that people can see a demonstration of this. Okay. So your torso is turning, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can pivot side to side this way. Yeah. Um, can't think of how to explain kind of like, this via audio. Yeah, it's not bending really. So like, it's like yeah, it's more like <clears throat> yeah, you're you're leaning over. Use simple words. Yeah, yeah. It's basically, like leaning to the side, yeah. right? And at your, I'm I'm using your spine as the focal point of all. So of maybe this, if right? you were like on a side pole and you wanted to make the hold better, then you lean to the side to yeah make it more directional. And one that I notice a lot for this, and I think it's I think it's yaw on the post. I could be wrong because I get them mixed up when I'm not looking at it, but um is people's ability to put their foot up really high, like by their shoulder. So you, you know, you climb at Leavenworth, you know, a lot of the time you have two holds and you need to heel hook one of the holds like right by your hand. Mm. So if your torso is perpendicular to the ground pointing straight up, then you have to have much more flexible hips to get your heel up there. Mm -hmm. But if you can pivot your torso away from the side that you're putting your heel up, well, then you don't have to stretch as far with your leg, right? Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of climbers are like unwilling to take their torso away from perpendicular to the ground. Hmm. I think partly it's just like a subconscious fear thing because it feels scary to do that, right? Um, so if, if they have that issue, then I'll just try to get them to explore that on the wall. Um, and a lot of the time, bam, they don't think their hips are so inflexible anymore, wow. which is really cool. It's fascinating to me that that's not just a totally intuitive thing that just happens if you're struggling to get your foot up on the hold. Yeah, it's, I mean, we just don't know the things that we don't know. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we all have yeah. different intuitions. Right. Um, and then the third one, before, before I forget to cover it, uh, is, uh, is pitching your torso forward and backward. So okay. if you imagine like slouching in a chair versus like leaning forward over your legs when you're sitting in a chair would be the last one. And that on a steep wall is a lot more subtle than mm. the other ones. But if you're on like a vert wall and you need to high step, then you actually will like lean away from the wall like that in order to get- To make room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and you see it on a, on like a 42. I mean, like if you need to be right under a hold when you go for it and stick it so you don't swing out too much. Yeah. That might be an example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those are, those are some things I look for. I think people's ability to use momentum, that's a really big one. Some people are- heavily biased towards like static climbing versus climbing with a lot of momentum. And that opens 10 million doors. Right. For sure. So that's interesting. So beta selection really is movement and technique, but you just frame it that way. Uh, yeah, because I think that's really interesting. I the like whole that. pyramid is is from the mind, from the point of view of that sending, peak performance. Your hardest thing. Yeah. yeah. And so I think of beta selection as being like, what did you pick out of your library in order to send that thing? Yeah. So it's not as much about like what you're practicing at home. Mm -hmm. That obviously plays a really big role. But by the time you show up at the crag, it's like done, mm -hmm. right? You're still going to learn a little bit. But for the most part, the practicing part is, is over. You're mm -hmm. just picking for the most part. Okay. Um, session tactics. Dope. I'm trying to find my list here. I have... Uh, actually, no, I only wrote down one thing. I'm, I, I don't know why I didn't think of more. You're so good at this. 
Um, I hope that you just have a mental list ready. But the only thing I have written down here is tough strips. <laughs> that's the only thing I have. That is so funny. It's session tactics. The tough strips are such a great, such a great example, though, because they're small but mighty. <laughs> so actually just, to, yeah, so we were in Leavenworth. Tell me about the tough strips. Okay, so the tough strips go back to a, a boulder that I did um, here at Smith uh, like a couple months ago or something okay. like that. And on this particular boulder, there's like this arete, like lip feature that you're slapping. And it's very square cut, really bad hold. And one spot right below where you need to get your fingers, there's just this pebble sticking out of the square cut arete. And if that pebble wasn't there, it would be like a perfect hold. But because that pebble's there, if you, if you don't latch the hold, and this is the crux of the boulder, then you get gouged basically in your mm. palm. And it's a pretty low percentage move. And it took me like, a, I don't know, six, five or six days or something to do the boulder. Um, so I just had like a permanent hole in my hand. And I could pretty much try that move like once and I'd start bleeding. Mm. And if I, it really got stuck in there, then I would like get a, basically a flapper in the middle of my palm. And I realized we have these band-aids that we never use <laughs> sitting in a cabinet. taping that part of your hand is so annoying. Yeah, you can't tape it. Right. It's like, this is like right in the center of your palm. You know, you see people do like the mummy tape around their whole palm, but you can't climb hard like that. It's like mm. way too, it messes with my proprioception. Mm. Um, but we have these band-aids that are like crazy adhesive. And I realized that they're like, they're strong enough to withstand slapping that hold. So I actually climbed like a V11 with a band-aid on my palm. <laughs> And I became such a fan. I threw a bunch of them in my skin kit because I was just like, well, this is like tape for things you can't tape. So I love it. And I went, I immediately went to Safeway and, and bought some. You can find them at Safeway, probably most grocery stores, like Walgreens, whatever. To Zoom, I think to they're Z I think they're Band-Aid brand, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're yeah. called Tough Strips. Tough Strips. Yeah. To zoom out though, the reason that the the reason you're bringing that up is and this is I think something that I consistently do in my climbing, is I'm like I, I just MacGyver solutions, I think. Yeah. I, I'm not too concerned with like what the the status quo is or if it's like cool to wear a Band-Aid on my hand to climb a V11. I'm just like, well, this is going to get the job done. So like, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm all I, about yeah. it, man. I, yeah. was, uh, <laughs> I was trying a boulder in Waco this year and trying unconventional beta that centered around a, a knee bar where you're just like digging your thigh right above your kneecap into like a spike. Did you do socks? Like I tried socks. socks. So I've, oh. I've had a knee bar pad and then I tried putting a sock under that folded in half for cushion mm -hmm. and it still hurt so bad and it was mm -hmm. a little bit too squishy. Um, and my friend, Gus, it was Gus, he had a piece of fire hose that he used as a rope protector, like Whoa. a piece of fire hose just like cut open. And he cut me a little square of fire hose and it's like this thick, Oh, and you put it under fabric the knee pad. with like the rubber under it. Yeah, and I put that brilliant. on my skin and like duct taped it to my skin below the knee bar pad. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, and it just gave me like a, I don't know, eighth inch thick thing that was just like really, really hard and tough, but like you know still comfortable beneath the pad. Nice. Didn't send the boulder, but I could, I could try, <laughs> but I could try the move more than like three times in a day. You know, because yeah. it was it was it was so painful that i could not push hard enough on right the knee you know yeah. like I, I wanted to i wanted to like mind over matter this move but it just like central governor like it, my body wouldn't let me push Too hard enough pain. on the foot you know yeah yeah that's a that's so. a brilliant idea i mean that guy climbed the sit 
start to the big island with a book underneath his knee pad. Right. So I think a fire hose is fair game. <laughs> um, one thing, one thing I have done is taken a pair of like thick wool socks that were, had holes in the foot and I just cut the, the like tube part. Mm. And then I would pull those up over my thigh. So you're wearing like a leg warmer from an old sock. Yeah. Like on my thigh. On your thigh. And then I would put, pull the knee pad up so that if I was knee bar, because at Viento, some of the, the knee bars are really sharp, like a rats and stuff. Uh-huh. And I just kept getting cut up here. Uh-huh. Um, up high, and like then, above the pad. Yeah. And then also on the patella too, depending okay. on like the root. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's, there's tube socks sticking out over your knee below the pad and above the pad. Up well, depending on, depending on what the thing, like Viento, you're climbing in the summer and it's like a hundred degrees. So I was wearing like straight up short shorts and I was actually, I would get like cut on my. Okay. Yeah. Can't remember what route that was. But yeah, stuff like, stuff like that. I mean, I just, I guess the, oops, I guess the takeaway um, for tactics is just to like always be thinking outside the box and figuring out what the thing is that's holding you back. And stuff like the the fire hose under the knee pad is a great example. Like there's a million ways to solve these problems. And if you just keep like throwing yourself at the root or the boulder, like there's probably something better that you could be doing. Mm. And that that doesn't have to be a physical thing, like a tough strip or a knee pad. Mm-hmm. It could be like, instead of trying to high point a long boulder or a root to try to low point it, right? That would be another really good basic example. And then try to work backwards instead of working upwards. So like, and once you build this library of all these tactics, like you'll start to understand what works in different situations. Yeah. Um, but it's so, there's it's so multifactorial and there's so many. Like I don't even think you could really put them in a book. Yeah. You know, because it would right. just be like tough strips. This is good for this thing. A fire hose under the knee pad is good for this. You need you need to be creative and be ready to come up with that stuff on your own. It's not just a question of like hearing it from somebody else. Yeah. If that makes sense, it's more about be, like just thinking creatively about how to solve the problem. One thing that's interesting, I mean, so many climbers love climbing and they fall in love with it because they are problem solvers. You know, it's so common to find like engineers and and people like that in climbing, mathematicians, whatever. Um, But I also, especially more and more nowadays, there's this interesting trend. Trend's not the right word. There's something I see surprisingly often in usually newer climbers, but not always, where they like have chosen the challenge Right. You know, like they they have a climb they want to do. They have their beta, even if it's terrible beta. <laughs> yeah. And they are just like so determined to do it that way. To the point where like sometimes people avoid good conditions because they almost did it in bad conditions. Right. And they're like, well, I know I can, you know. Right. Stubborn. Stubborn. Yeah. Again, sunk cost, fall- sunk cost fallacy again. Right. And I, I wonder if you have worked with someone like that and, and if you've been able to help someone break out of that. And be, because, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I on one hand, I kind of get it. Like if you are always resorting to like really specific tricks and tactics and things to send things, I think at some point that can actually like limit your growth in climbing. But to just neglect them and just, I guess it, it goes back to like treating climbing like a purely physical yeah. challenge, right? How do you, how do you, con- that's what, yeah, that's the question. How do you convince people that climbing is not just a physical challenge and that there's, um, there's reward, I guess. There's reward in exploring those other things and sending, even if you had to resort to tricks, you know, that, that would be like the pessimistic way of framing it. Yeah. 
first of all, I, I don't think I'm in a position where I'm trying to convince anybody of anything. You know, if they don't want, if they believe climbing is purely physical and they enjoy it that way, like bully for them. Mm. I, I think that's good. And if they're into that, then they're into that. It's more like if they're open to exploring it from a different lens, then I would like want to talk to them about seeing it through some other ways and maybe like backing off on the physical aspect a little bit. But the reason that I would do that and the reason that I think the scenario you're describing where somebody's like banging their head against some what looks like bad beta from the outside is because if you zoom out, the reason that we're all climbing is because we want to have these good experiences, right? And we want to have something meaningful in our life to like attach ourselves to. So I, I don't want to sit here and like look down on somebody who, if they're getting that out of banging their head against the mm. thing, then that's good for them. And, and if that's all they want, then that's great. I don't want to, I don't want to seem like I'm like looking down my nose at them yeah. if they're psyched on that. But if the reason you climb is to have these peak experiences and you want to like feel a sense of progression and stuff, then you definitely want to be doing things and moving on to other things because part of it is, is having new experiences. And if you're just only stuck in this loop of like attacking something with the same method over and over, it's crazy making and your relationship with climbing eventually is going to suffer. And like, I've gone pretty deep on projects and I don't regret having ever done that, but I probably wouldn't do it again with where I'm at in my climbing now. Mm. You know? And that's interesting. Like I would just go do something else and I would come back to the project later. Okay. As in a different place in my climbing, maybe better, hopefully, mm -hmm. maybe a little stronger, mm -hmm. but different. And I think the big thing is they're like, and now we're getting into like kind of the deep philosophical stuff, right? We're all going to hit a point where we're not climbing harder anymore. And if, if your strategy is to bang your head against the thing and that's what satisfies you, you're going to really have a hard time when you hit that wall. Mm. Whereas if your strategy is to just try to get a good experience and try to enjoy it and try to perform well and feel some progression, regardless of what the grade is or whatever. And if, if you're really struggling and you're getting really frustrated and you're slamming your head against it, you're just like, all right, I'm going to go do this with something else and take a break. Well, then I think that gentle curve downward that, that is eventually going to happen, maybe not for a long time for most of us, is going to be a lot easier to stomach. Mm. And that's just part, I think that's just part of my outlook. I haven't really felt that downward thing. I think I'm still upward. Yeah. But I don't get nearly as sucked into things as I used to, unless I know it's going to end with me doing it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That, that last sentence, actually, there's like a lot. Um, it's, it, it just comes with, yeah, it comes with climbing for a long time. You kind of know when you can do stuff. Yeah. And like, I want to be vulnerable and expose myself to harder things. That's part of why we're moving to Leavenworth. And I will then be like challenged again in this philosophy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want that. Mm. But like here in Bend, even the like really hard, scary stuff that I've done lately, I kind of knew, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? After like maybe three or four sessions, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it. It's just a question of like when work work yeah and we will be right back
This episode is brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl equipment for more than a decade. And today I want to talk about quick draws. Rock climbing is hard, but clipping shouldn't be. Whether you're on siding, red pointing, or just warming up, the last thing you want to be struggling with is clipping your quick draws. That is why in 1991, Petzl introduced the Spirit Quick Draw. They set out to build the best clipping carabiner on the market, and 31 years later, you can still find Spirit Express Quick Draws hanging on the hardest routes in the world. And these are also my favorite quick draws, and they're the ones that I leave hanging on my own projects. Petzl makes some of the most clippable and durable carabiners on the market. Each Petzl carabiner design is tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and close cycles. That's a lot of clips. Whether you're climbing 510 or 514, you deserve a carabiner that's clippable, durable, and affordable. Check out Petzl's entire line of carabiners and quick draws at your local retailer or online at Petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at Petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. And in addition to support from our amazing sponsors, this episode is brought to you by many of you who listen to this show. One of the primary means of support that I get for this podcast is direct support from listeners on Patreon. For just $5 per month, you can gain instant access to more than 30 bonus episodes with some of your favorite guests from the show, with more coming all the time. I think I've published 36 follow-ups right now. I've recorded follow-up episodes with Emily Harrington, Jonathan Segrist, Steve Bechtel, Alex Johnson, Joe Kinder, Ron Kauk, and many of your other favorite guests and you can get access to all of those bonus episodes the second you sign up. And if that's not enough, you will also get access to ad-free episodes, so you will never again have to skip through ads. To learn about more great perks, head over to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. It only takes a few minutes to sign up, and you can cancel at any time, no questions asked. That's patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing, or scroll down and click on the link right there in your podcast app. It's $5 a month, and it goes a really long way to helping me out and to helping keep this show alive. You can think of it as buying me a beer at the pub after a great day of climbing. All right, I appreciate you guys for listening, and thank you for your support. And now back to the show. Tactics. <laughs> that was tactics. Every conversation about anything in climbing with me is going to come back to like deep philosophy stuff. That's I why can't, I, I can't help it. I'm so happy that we're doing this because I love it, dude. I love it. But yeah, tangible stuff. Any other tactics that like low hanging fruit that you see people missing? I mean, I, I brought these, I brought two lists in my notes, two really simple little lists that we could do. Great. So because I wanted some of this to be practical and not just me like philosophizing. Um, so I brought three things that beginner climbers could do like right now. Oh yes. I love, okay. I love where you're going with this. This is perfect. And these are, these are simple things. People may have heard these before or almost definitely heard these before, but I bought, I brought, um, three tips for beginners and three tips for, for outdoor focused climbers. Okay. Let's so, yeah. Take so, uh, okay. So number one for beginners is to film yourself and write down stuff that you do. Mm. I mean, it's so, 
it's so easy, it's so obvious, but it is still it still seems to be low hanging fruit. And you know, you keep asking me to like relate it back to people I work with, and I have done a lot of the like written assessment um, with people, and I would say the majority, probably like seventy five percent of people, do not write down anything about their climbing. Wow. So. Yeah, you will have to learn the same lesson multiple times if you don't write down what you learned. Uh -huh. <laughs> People, write <laughs> yeah. it down. Go to the gym, Yeah, finish your session. You don't have to have your phone out while you're at the gym, but as soon as you're done, you know, like as soon as you get home or as soon as you're like when you're packing up your shoes or whatever, just take two sentences of notes about what you did at the gym. And if you learned something, if you were like, I learned that when I like put my heel up, I can like drop my trailing foot off of the foothold and that actually puts more weight on my heel and gets my hips even closer to the wall. Like write that down. Mm. That is a breakthrough and you need to like save that so that the next time you're in that situation, it pops into your mind, right? That's number one. Um, and filming as well. And filming, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a little bit more, I feel like that's a little bit more straightforward or like popular. When would you have someone review footage of themselves and, and what would you... Like, are they looking for specific things? Or are they just watching and noticing? Is it like in between tries? Is it the end of the day to kind of debrief their day? All of the above and as much as possible. Okay, great. It, I mean, we could deviate into a whole thing about external and internal visualization, but I, I, I don't want to. Okay, great. <laughs> I think okay. we should get through the list. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think film yourself as much as you can and just watch it and things will pop, things will come out of that and you'll form a relationship with that process of filming and so it doesn't need to be like super codified i think just just do it uh number two is take every opportunity you get to do the sport in a different context and explore yourself as a climber and climb with new people and like go on trips and just see different sides of the sport mm. like say yes to everything that you possibly could i think like we talked about because i was in like a rough place when i started climbing just people would be like, do you want to go X? And I would be like, yes. Mm. And I'm really, really glad that I did that. And I often hear similar stories from other people where they're like, I had never been to such and such a crag. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I was like pretty surprised. Or maybe maybe they hated it, but you know, they're still probably glad they went Yeah, and found out. Can I add something to that? Yeah. I get, I've, I've had several conversations in the last six months about like, you know, I, I had a conversation with Chad Andrews on clipping chains and then with uh, Tom Randall on Lattice about like, what did you, what have you learned from the last two years of doing this and talking to all these people? Yeah. And how has that shaped your climbing? Like, that's kind of the, the focal point. It's like, how has this shaped you and your climbing? Yeah. And I don't think anything has had a bigger impact in the last two years than simply traveling and climbing in lots of new areas and climbing in steeper terrain than I had before. Hell yeah. Because I've spent so much time at Smith and on basalt cliff bands that aren't very steep. And before that in Leavenworth on steep stuff, but like it was always squeezing, it was always feature climbing. Yeah. And just going climbing steep limestone, climbing in Waco, quantum climbing leap, in dude. Rocky. Yeah, total quantum leap. And I've like, I've done some training along the way and I've, I've you know, the guidance from Steve Mache of like how I approach those trips has been really helpful, but I, I think take those things away and it still would have been a quantum leap just going and climbing in those different right. areas and styles. I was actually thinking about this. I didn't put it in my notes and I, I do, I, I won't get too distracted from the list, but I was thinking people will overestimate the impact that one training cycle will have and underestimate the impact that spending that same amount of time climbing with intent will have. Mm. And that might be specific to the American audience and the kind of the people that I'm focused on and interact with. But I really think people think training is like gonna 
give them the breakthrough, but actually it's like what you did. It's like just going out and climbing a ton right. in some different new context. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think their first six week training block is going to like, yeah, completely change their climbing. <laughs> yeah. And it'll help. It, it might, they might get hurt. Yeah. Could change, that could change it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Your list. All right. Uh, number three is, um, <clears throat> this is the list for, for beginner climbers. Number three is to take up a hobby that has good synergy with climbing. Mm, oh, I like that one. Photography, cooking, music, podcasting, start a podcast. Uh, honestly, it's, it's, it almost feels barely related, but like, I've always been super interested in psychology and philosophy. And so I have endless good conversations when I go climbing and I consider that hobby to have been very useful for my climbing. Mm. So just find something like that. Eventually you'll get hurt and you'll be really glad you have like something else you're interested in. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, that first serious injury for beginners is like usually pretty rough. Yeah. Because <laughs> their it's, identity is so wrapped up in it. Totally. It's not just that too. Like nothing has been more helpful with like expectations and in, in like having a healthy balance with climbing than starting this podcast and having a second thing that I love. Yeah. You know, like I'm not as wrapped up and I have to send to feel like I had a good day or a good season. Feel or, like you're a worthy human. Right. Like, oh, I sent, so now I'm a worthy human. Right. If I hadn't sent, I would have been dog shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, it helps to have other things that your identity is is wrapped in. Like when it I- It takes pressure off the, like the red point tries too. Definitely. Like I, I feel the difference. Yeah, it's like a good day no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I when I like really hurt my neck, I, I like had to struggle to find something else to identify with. And I, I dove into a whole bunch of things. But the big lesson that I learned was, oh, I need to have other things in my life besides mm -hmm. just climbing because might not have it forever, right? Mm -hmm. So should I do the next list too? Yeah. Um, so the other thing is, um, <clears throat> or the other list is three things that outdoor focused or like performance focused climbers. So I would think like intermediate level climbers can do um, if they're not already doing these things. And that would be number one, have a rough plan of your year. So identify like trips you want to go on, performance seasons, off seasons, when you might do a strength training season, when you might have a rest week and just have a loose plan at when those things are. Because if you don't have a loose plan of when those things are, it's going to be 12 straight months of performance climbing. <laughs> and it's not going to work as well as it could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 12 straight months of mediocre performance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where you just feel beat up the whole time. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a perfect plan. Yeah. Just have a rough plan. And I'm, I'm laughing at myself. Like I have absolutely done that. So. Yeah. It's hard not to when you live in a van and you can go to wherever it's good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, number two, most outdoor kind of intermediate climbers that I engage with have some kind of life list or like dream thing. Mm. So my recommendation is make that life list real somehow. And you're a great example, your van, you have that chalkboard in your van mm. that has your, your goals or your priorities to move you towards your big goal, right? Yep. Make it real, put it somewhere that you have to see it. Um, whenever I'm like working on a boulder or I'm like super psyched to do a boulder, I make it my phone background. I get a picture of it that's really sick. Mm. Either I take a picture, if I've tried it, I get a, a screen cap from the video or I'll like find a sick picture on the internet. And I'll make it my screen. So every time I turn my phone on, so like last year from April until November when I did turbulence, turbulence is my phone background. And so that whole summer I was opening my phone and I was like, I'm gonna have to fucking do turbulence this fall, dude. <laughs> it really works. That's really cool. I like that. Um, and then number three, which this is maybe the biggest one and the one that I see people struggle with the most is to get better at being outside. 
like you need to boy scout a little bit mm. people how many times have you seen people have a really ha hard climbing day because they like misread the guidebook and like couldn't get to the crag or uh -huh. couldn't get to the boulders that they were trying to go to or they get lost or they're just like struggling to schlep their pads around because they don't know how to move well on uneven terrain. Yeah, they didn't um, bring enough layers. They didn't bring enough water. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that stuff really matters and it will ruin your climbing day. Mm. And I, I actually was a Boy Scout. Shame to admit a little bit. And like having five of the 10 essentials in your climbing pack is a really good idea, especially what? if you're hiking a couple miles. Like a pocket knife uh -huh. and a headlamp. Like I don't ever go climbing without a pocket knife and a headlamp. Okay. And they've come in handy. So the headlamp's obvious to me. When is the pocket knife come in handy? When you're if climbing? you need to cut things. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to go any further than that. <laughs> uh, oh it's actually gosh. a multi, it's a multi-tool. So okay. it's useful for all kinds of stuff. But yeah, yeah just like a little light multi-tool. Tape. Skincare Tape, kit. Definitely. Yeah. Extra batteries for your headlamp. Not a terrible idea. Yeah, and yeah. obviously the further you're going, the bigger of a deal it is, right? If you're going more than a couple miles and you're with other people, like you should really have a first aid kit, honestly. Like somebody in the group should have a first aid kit. Mm. And yeah. I, I don't know, that's just one of those things, like I look back at some of the climbing that I did and I'm just like, holy shit, I'm glad I like survived that intact because we were not ready for that situation. Mm. You know, I saw a lady break her back in Wyoming, you know? Wow. And I was like, thank goodness this happened at this like fairly local crag and not like, way in the deep i was there to climb in the alpine yeah you know yeah. and it, it happened at a little dinky crag like right outside of lander yeah um but if it had happened in the alpine like that's a ooh, that's a mess yeah so yeah so get better at being outside is the the takeaway there that those are the lists was that all three great that was all three yeah okay can you summarize them um yeah uh three for beginner climbers film yourself and write everything down take every opportunity to do the sport in a different context take up a hobby that has good synergy with climbing and then three things for outdoor focused climbers are have a rough plan for your year, actually make your life list into a real thing that you have to confront every day, and then get better at being outside. I love it. Yeah, it was really important to me coming on the show that that we had some practical takeaway and not just like talking about the philosophy of whether you send or not. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, this whole thing is chock full. There's so many nuggets already, Jesse. Awesome. I knew there would be. Um, okay. Let's see here. Technique drills and doing technique drills outside on rock. Cool. Yeah. Is that the whole question? That's the whole question. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's something that we talked about when we were in Leavenworth. Like you, I think you just said like, you're always surprised at, like there almost needs to be a conversation around that. Like people just assume you have to go in the gym and, and like work on specific drills in the gym to work on technique. But yeah. of, of course you can do that on rock. Yep. You don't have to try to send climbs every time you go rock climbing. You can just repeat stuff. You can work on specific moves. And you can practice your technique when you are trying to send rock climbs. Totally. You should be practicing your technique. Yeah. So yeah, there you answered the question. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, yeah, nice. I just had that on my uh, on my list here. I want to talk about flashing boulders because that's another thing. Like I talked about you and consistency. That's another thing that really impresses me about your climbing. You're very good at doing things first try. You're very consistently good at doing things first try. And you do that at a really high level relative to your maximum red point ability as well. So you've climbed V12, but you've also flashed V10, which 
I don't know how normal that is. I think usually there's a greater spread. I um, think that's about right. Really? It's and two? it's just one of each. Okay. So it's kind of like nicely symmetrical. Yeah. That's interesting. It's usually like a two V grade gap. I think that's pretty close most for most people. Okay. Yeah. I would think if it was if it was higher, I would think they could red point harder. And if it was lower, I would think they could flash harder. So it, <laughs> it must be about right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, flashing tips. Is that something that you work on with intention? I mean, I've, I've seen you do this actually. Like you had a season where your goal was to flash V10 and you yep. kind of built your whole climbing season around that goal and just did a ton of first try climbing. Actually, it, actually, that was a goal for like five years. Okay. <laughs> and I really did try really hard to do it the season that I did it. So, um, but yeah, it's something that I started focusing on in maybe like 2014 or something. Cause I kind of realized I had hit a wall at V11 and I think the hardest I'd flashed was like a handful of V8s and maybe a V9 at the time, maybe, maybe. Um, so I went to Joe's Valley for five weeks that year or yeah, five weeks. And I just didn't try anything more than five times. Mm like five strict five try limit. I think the last week of the trip, I allowed myself to go back to boulders mm -hmm. like a second day, but I would still only do five tries on that second day. Wow. And that might not sound like it's all flashing, but it does result in a lot of flashes. And when you only have five tries, every try kind of feels like a flash try. Yeah. Can you break that down? Like, would you allow yourself to try sequences or moves? No. Okay. You're going from start. You're going from the ground every times. time. Yeah. Got it. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Pretty strict ethic. I would I even like touch holds and stuff. It's not like a world cup, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't try moves. Um, and that was, that was really, really effective. And now I feel like I have like a pretty good like framework for how to deal with it, which I of course have notes on if you want to. <laughs> Let's dive into it. <laughs> <laughs> Do other people show up prepared with like laminated <laughs> notes? <laughs> it's not really laminated. A couple of people have, and I love it, man. You're just yeah. like, you're just carrying, um, I just didn't have to prepare as much <laughs> for this conversation. <laughs> it's good. I did no, all the preparation for you. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, all right. So my here are my my condensed thoughts on flashing boulders. The most important thing is to to know yourself and to know if like this is the time or this is the day. Okay. I think and really get in. And this goes back to that like red point mode, like ability to get in the zone thing. If you're having a hard time getting in the zone and you have like a flash that you really want to get it might not be the time to go for it unless you can like get yourself into that state. Mm. So that's like pretty important. That's the thing you're practicing when you're doing the five try limit. Um, and then I have like the steps, the actual steps that I follow are really the same as anytime you walk up to a boulder, I inspect it. I clean it if I need to. I'd like try to figure out how I'm going to grab the holds. If I'm working off of a video, I'll like maybe watch, try to watch the video at the boulder. That's not something that I was able to do when I was in Joe's Valley, but that's something you can do now, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, just to pause you real quick, yeah. a lot of people will likely know this. Some people may not. Like what is the consensus flash ethic in regards to what you just said, like figuring out how you're going to feel holds. Can you feel the holds and sure. fondle them and stuff? Is it only the things you can reach from the ground? Can you stack pads? Like <laughs> what's your take on that? Yeah, stacking pads or a ladder, that starts to get into maybe questionable territory. So I'll tell you my ethic. For me, flash means you can gather as much information as you want and you can wait as long as you want, as long as you don't pull off the ground. But as soon as you've pulled off the ground on any of the moves of the boulder, you cannot flash it. 
mm. unless you do it on that try. Mm -hmm. So there are some kind of questionable examples. Like there's these two classic climbs in Joe's Valley, Planet of the Apes and Chips, mm. where you start on the same hold. One of them, you make a right-hand move. One of them, you make a left-hand move. Mm -hmm. But it's like basically still the same start. So like that, get that's kind of a gray area, I guess. Most people would probably say you could flash both of those. Yeah. But like up to, you know, other than stuff like that, the basic rules are you, you can do as much as you want, but when you pull off the ground, that's it. That's your Got try. It. Okay. And that's the rules that I follow. And I, I would, for me, a ladder is out. Mm -hmm. um, dropping a rope on it. I would probably call that a first try and not a flash. I would make a distinction there because mm. it just feels like it doesn't earn a flash anymore okay. for me. If you lowered in and felt all the holds up high and stuff. I would maybe like, I think if I, if I was really wondering about a hold, I'd probably stack a pad or two, but I wouldn't make like a fat, like six pad stack and like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so yeah, after I, after I inspect it and then that might be it, that might be all I do for the day. I might go look at it, like on a rest day, I might go look at a boulder and do that and then leave. That's something I've done a lot. Wow, that's interesting. Like Leavenworth is a great example. I walk up to boulders in Leavenworth all the time that I want to flash someday mm. and I don't pull on. Is that like, what are you, what are you doing with that information? Oh, you're learning so much stuff. Like if you're going to like carry your pads up there and try the boulder, you've, you've carried pads up on a climbing day and spent all that effort to learn stuff that you could learn by walking up there without a pad. Mm. How many pads do you need? What's the aspect of the boulder? Does it get sun? Does it get wind? Like how safe does it feel to you? Do you need to clean? Do you need to like come back with a brush so you can clean the top out? All that stuff. You can learn that on a rest day. You don't need to be climbing to learn that. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's pretty valuable to save your energy. Your Got climate, it. Climate okay. I guess energy. I was thinking more of like specific moves or prep or things like that for the actual climbing of it. But that I'm glad you said all that. I think one cycle of watching videos looking at the thing and then going back and watching videos again mm. is really, really good. It's a lot better to do that than to just go watch the videos, go to the boulder, try to flash it. Mm. If you can get a full cycle in there where you go back and watch the videos again, which is why like having service at the crag and having all these videos on our phones is almost like cheap mode for flashing because mm -hmm. you can do that whole cycle at the boulder. Mm -hmm. Next thing after that is to conceive, which if you have a video, you should have a pretty solid concept of like, what the strategy is going to be. Um, and for me, that might involve like choosing between a couple methods or just having some rough ideas of what I'm going to do. That's like the, the creative stage. And then um, after that is visualization. So that part I might sit on for a really long time because I think a big thing in flashing is removing uncertainty and trying to get your sequence down to something you feel confident in. Like you can make decisions on the fly, but I, for me, I want my sequence to be pretty like set mm. i don't want to make decisions on the fly mm. unless it's like i'm gonna hit the jug and then it's a top out and i just have to decide whether i'm going left or right mm -hmm. and then i'll be like visualize visualize jug go left or right it's yeah fine. you know <laughs> yeah. what i mean figure it out You're, you'll be fine yeah yeah so okay. so i might hang at that like visualization removing uncertainty stage for like a while there's boulders that i've saved for like years at that mm. point until i come back and i'm under the boulder and i'm like oh okay i'm not uncertain like I can do it now. Wow. <laughs> so that's how I flash things. I love it, dude. That's <laughs> awesome. Does that make, does that, is that helpful? No, it's people? great. I, <laughs> this is why I appreciate you so much. Cause I think, I think I, I think you and I are fairly similar. Like I think I have not an equally thoughtful approach, but a very thoughtful approach to my own climbing. I just 
they haven't put any of these things into language really mm. like I've, I've never sat down and tried to i guess codify you keep using that word that's the perfect word I, i've never yeah. tried to codify my climbing philosophy um you should try it it's fun yeah it's interesting like I, that's one of the reasons i like podcasts so much is that i find myself yeah you're doing it right now i'm doing it right now like that's my i, I like uh process through talking through asking questions through explaining and yeah, it happens all the time on the podcast where someone asks me something and I say something and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know that I thought about it that way, but that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's cool. But I, I really like how thoughtful you are and how or, like clear and organized your thinking is. Thank you. Around this stuff. Thank you. It really does tie back to the, if you don't write it down, like you'll, you'll lose it. I mm. really feel like I'll lose it if I don't write it down. That's so interesting. Yeah. It'll, it'll still be there intuitively, but I like to get it on. Yeah. Get it on paper if I can. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, I have one more thing on the flashing. Perfect. The most important thing maybe, okay. which is you have to be ready to surprise yourself. Mm. You have to be curious about what's going to happen. If you're not curious about what's going to happen, if you think you know what's going to happen, like uh, it won't be as interesting, mm -hmm. right? Especially if you are sure that you're not going to flash it. So I think that step is pretty important. Okay. If you're pulling off the ground and you're like, I'm not going to do it. Well, yeah. you will have then, yeah, then you'll like really have to surprise yourself. So it's good to be like curious about it. It can go the other way too. Like where people will surprise themselves by breaking through all of a sudden they're like facing the top out and yeah. they freak out yeah. because they're like so shocked that they're there. I think that that sensation is what makes flashing or on sighting, same thing, like so cool and exciting is when you just don't know if you can do it and you do it and you're just like elated on the on the boulder or on the route or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, oh my God, I can't believe that I did that. I mm -hmm. can't believe I managed it. That's such a cool feeling. And I think it's a little bit, for me, it's a little bit easier to access via flash than it is via red point. Cause usually like on a red point, it's more like, finally. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, okay, what, let's see. How you feeling? Let's check in. Oh, we, yeah, this, I feel all right. We've packed in so much information. I feel really? like we've been talking for like three 40 hours. Minutes. But no, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is still a short it's just, podcast. It's just by dense. The oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay. No, I feel, um, I feel fine. Okay, great. So flashing, let's, let's talk about highballing. Let's talk about climbing tall stuff and nice. pointing tall stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to ask you actually just about some of the standout experiences you've had in that facet of climbing i know some of them have been recent but yeah yeah um yeah what are some of the what are some of the ones that stand out uh i i always set goals for myself every year and last year 2021 my my two main climbing goals were to do these two projects in bend that i had spotted and i did both of them and they were both like super standout experiences I, I wouldn't say they're like the physically hardest things I've done, but they're for like full package for me, full package climbs. Um, things you found, like they probably hadn't been climbed first ascents. Yeah. First ascents. The first one, I mean, as far as I know, it's hard to, it's har hard to tell around here. Cause it's like some of those guys like John Cronin back in the day were like just unbelievably good. And they did some really, really amazing things. And actually John Cronin did this thing, um, called Cronin the Barbarian at Meadow Camp, 
which is like it's got to be 25 feet tall maybe or more of like face climbing like on crimps and i think he did it in like high top shoes with like you know a seat cushion like a car seat cushion or something like that <laughs> or like maybe like an early prototype crash pad mm -hmm. and it's like not even a super flat landing wow um so how hard is that that thing uh the grades all over the place i think it i think they call it 13a as like a top rope okay but i've heard the boulder grade everything from v7 to v9 wow i thought it felt like around v9 damn personally wow okay. but it, it has an endurance component because it's like really long yeah um and actually five feet to the left of that is this perfect beautiful arete that actually just kind of goes up into a tree a huge lodgepole and if that tree wasn't there then this arete would just be like the most unbelievably striking line mm. like jaw-droppingly cool looking line the only reason i think that it hadn't been done is because it just looks terrifying mm. But I remember the first time I came to Meadow Camp before I even moved here, uh, I think I was there with Logan and I think he showed me like Cronin and I was like, holy shit, that's crazy. But I remember seeing the Arete and being like, what is that? That's amazing. Equally tall? Taller. Taller. <laughs> yeah, because it, and it's overhanging yeah. and it goes over like, not like rocks, but there are some rocks. Mm -hmm. um, like some flat landing, some some rocks and you just need like, a lot of pads and you know to go back to the tactics thing like some people maybe would say that you know that that uh method of head pointing because i head pointed these boulders um some people consider that like invalid you know or not like fully cool but like i never would have done it if i hadn't done it that way mm -hmm. and i'm totally happy with my style of ascent yeah totally happy did not break my legs got to do something really cool 100 percent satisfied and I, I guess to like close the story, like I did wind up going back and doing that arete like eight years later. Yeah. Um, and I called it the monk because I spent so much time out there by myself and it's right next to that thing, the barbarian. So I was like, well, well this is the monk, I guess. <laughs> um, nice. And like, that was a major breakthrough. How hard did that end up being, you think? <sighs> That's such a hard question because it's like 20 moves. Okay. Not really a boulder anymore. Yeah. But it, it breaks down to like crux at the beginning, maybe v8 and then you can like get a shake on each hand because there's like a heel hook and then top crux is like v7 mm. but it's like you're dead pointing to like the lip of the boulder like the flat lip of the boulder and your feet are like 20 feet off the ground so it's like how do you grade that right it's not and and that's this that's with all the high balls i'm just kind of like it doesn't really it almost needs its own system like i want to give yeah. it an e-grade <laughs> yeah yeah maybe huh yeah it's hard to separate the physical from the mental at that point yeah um but it definitely is a step up from cronin in like every way like physically and mentally and technically and then so that felt really good to check that off the list um, when did you when did you do that last april okay just over a year ago uh and then i had to like retreat and <laughs> get my feet underneath me and like do some normal climbing mm -hmm. and then uh i slowly worked up the gumption to try the other line which is it's at riley ranch here in bend and it's right next to this unbelievably epic like v8 or 9 called trophy hunter such a good problem 20 star problem 
<laughs> me, and, me and my friend Mike were joking like that's a five-star problem anywhere but in Oregon that's a 20-star problem <laughs> and to the left of Trophy Hunter is this scythe blade of rock that sticks out it just sticks out over a whole bunch of rocks and it's just staggeringly huge and it's such an imposing scary looking feature because it's just like a knife blade like a ret that just scythes into the sky basically when you're standing mm. underneath it and that was a beast because it climbs in like an s shape it, it climbs up on trophy hunter and then it goes into a roof and you climb like a few moves of a roof and then you have to climb like 10 feet of head wall mm. so i couldn't link the whole thing on a rope because that roof like messes with the the yeah, rope line got it so i had to work it like in a bunch of sections and like really break it down mm -hmm. and then when i did it was the first time i had ever like linked to the head wall <sighs> man so i'm really glad i did it but to be honest the experience of doing it i was like all right that's the raggedy edge wow like i'm not going to do anything scarier than that because that's it was too much for me honestly i hit the wall <laughs> <laughs> I wow. like my my feeling when I finished the monk and topped it out was like hell yeah that was sick. My feeling when I topped out that other problem which I called imposter syndrome was like I'm so glad I didn't just fucking kill myself or wow. like break my legs or something. Yeah. Cuz it was like it, I got it was cold that day. I got pumped, like way more pumped than I expected and I got numb. Mm. And so those last few moves on the head wall I was like really like fighting for it, you know what I mean? What would have happened if you had fallen there? Like, was that an option at all? Um, like if you fell okay? like, yeah, I think if you fell straight down, you know, you just hit the pads really hard and it's like ro a rock landing that we built under the pads. It's not like dirt. So from that high, like you could really hurt yourself landing on pads. Mm -hmm. I mean, my feet are probably 20 or 25 feet off the ground. I don't know. I never measured that one. Yeah. But the big thing with that height and something that's easy to underestimate is like if you if your foot pops over to the side or you have a heel hook and your heel pops or you have a heel hook in your hand your other hand pops you can fall with a lot of angular momentum mm. and it's really easy to miss the pads or to land on the pads with like pitching like turning sideways mm -hmm. and you'll get messed up doing that and that was my biggest fear because there's like a kind of technical heel hook sequence at the very top Man, my, <laughs> so, my, my palms are getting sweaty. I, so me too. <laughs> how did you decide when to go for it or when you were ready, given that you couldn't link the whole thing on a rope first? Yeah, I, I did my best and I did a lot of shenanigans. And uh, my fiance was like very generous with going out there and actually belaying me, not just like top mm. rope soloing on a Grigri, but like I was getting a belay. And I would literally, the closest I came a couple days before I did it was, I had the beginning of the V9 of, so dialed so i would climb that up to the point where it deviated drop to the pads with a harness on clip myself into the top rope jumar up on her side and then try to climb the head wall mm. i couldn't quite do the whole thing but i could do like 70 percent of it it was so it was so much fiddling around and it yeah. didn't even get me close to what it actually felt like <laughs> in retrospect <laughs> so how did i how did i choose Man, that is a hard question because more than anything else I've done in my climbing, I was like carrying that one around. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I was Just getting about it. I was getting closer. I like hadn't fallen on the head wall in like several sessions. You know what I mean? And I was like, that, that's probably a good sign because it's probably like V6 or V7. 
And I felt really confident on the crux, which is like this handcuff move on like bubbles, basically. You know how basalt forms those little like bubble holds? Okay. Just like little, you're like crimping, but each finger is kind of on like a different mm. set of bubbles. Mm -hmm. um, and you handcuff yourself on it. So you like go to this bubble and then you put your other hand like right on it and you have to pull that crossed hand out from underneath out to like another bad hold. And I felt pretty confident on that. I felt like strong. Um, and I knew that I was getting close. And then like the anxiety set in just of knowing that I was going to try to do it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, like I could try to do it. And then I would just like, you know, sitting here in a situation like this, I would just be sitting at work basically. And my palms would just start sweating and I would like feel my heart rate increase just from like thinking about trying to do it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the end, what made me decide to do it was I just had good conditions and I had an opportunity and our friend Sam was like willing to come carry pads because we had to carry a lot of pads. How many pads? There were, there's some pads out there and we probably took not everything you can see, but just about. So probably like, we probably had like 14, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it, it covers totally. so much ground. I still had to have Sam move pads while I was on the wall Yeah, with all that. So, um, oh, man. yeah, like the, the big thing was like, I, once I, once I knew I could do it and it, at that point it was almost like. I wanted to, to, I saw the opportunity and I was like, I just needed to, to be done with I it. I need to try. Mm. Yeah. And it, it was a, it was like risky. Mm. And that's, I think why I had a hard climbing experience and why I had a little bit of like a come to Jesus moment with it. Yeah. Because most of the time, like with the monk, I was just like, Hey, like who wants to go out on Saturday? I've got this thing like dialed and I'm ready to do it. And mm. then I did it, you know, mm -hmm. and imposter syndrome wasn't that way at all. Why that name? Central Oregon has a a very very strong climbing community and ethic and it always kind of has. And so moving here and like not necessarily trying to make my mark or anything but just like trying to do what I do and perform well on boulders I'm like always chasing down the ghost of like the really badass guy that did it in the 90s with no crash pad. <laughs> And even when I did the monk, like you asked if these were FAs and I was like, I was like, I think so, mm -hmm. but I don't know for sure. I'd have to like link up with John Cronin and talk to him, you know, and imposter syndrome was like, that was the first one where I was really like, no, that's, that's a first ascent. Mm -hmm. And, and it, that really is what that is, is like, I, I'm just, even at the level that I am operating on and some of these things, I still am doubting myself. Yeah. And it, it is, that is imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, and it, I, it just ran through my head so much when I was trying that thing and when I when I did it that I had to name it that. So just for context, you think like V11 for that one, something like that? It's that one's harder to break down, but I would say it's like you do all the V8, the intro of the V8, and then the crux is maybe like V9 or 10. And then you get a, a pretty good shake right before the head wall. Okay. Like you can shake each hand. At that point, when I did it, I was numb. And so I like couldn't camp out there mm. and I didn't expect that. So that might play a role in like future sense. Mm. And then the head wall is like V6 or seven, maybe. I said V11, but it's probably more like 13C. Those two things are not the same. I know, that's what other people have told me too. <laughs> They're not even close. It's, here's what that's it like is, dude. It's like, it's like 
it's like V7 to V9 to a V7 where you cannot fall. That's definitely not 13C. I'm not a, I'm not a great expert. I, I, I hate giving these things. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably 514. It's V9 to 11, like R. Okay. R. Just V9 to V11, like with an R. Oh, okay. That's it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like not for the faint of heart. Do you feel... Double flutter. Double flutter. Do you feel most proud of that, of all your climbing? I think it's it's polluted because my climbing experience on it was like not very pleasant. Yeah. And I'll never do it again. So like I feel prouder of the monk because I had such a positive time on it and mm. I executed really well. Whereas in imposter syndrome, I was like, thank God I didn't die. So mm-hmm. it's hard to be like, woohoo, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah. I, I will say this, like I've been out to look at both of those problems. And of all the things I've done that I think were first ascents, I, those are two of the things that I'm the most proud of for mm. sure by far. They're just, they're stunningly gorgeous, intimidating pieces of rock. And any like hardcore highball boulderer who rolled through Bend would be like really psyched. They'd mm. be like, hell yeah, I want to try to do that. That's amazing. Like That's cool. They're really, really high quality boulders. Do you feel drawn to repeating other classic highballs that have been done? Like, yeah. Okay. For sure. I don't, I haven't done that as much, but I definitely have my eye on a few things that I know are, are tall and love north. Okay. We'll see. I usually feel it out. I like to keep joking that I'm retired from it, but I'm definitely <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, is it worth talking about advice? Like anything that you've learned from your head pointing experience that you would pass on or, or like, would you even recommend? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's hard to recommend. Right. I would say, you know, explore, like be, be curious and explore the feeling of like being afraid while you're climbing. Don't be afraid of being afraid. But in the whole context of like being able to get in the zone and like climb on command, the head pointing or like climbing high balls in general is a, is you use that for the head pointing. Mm. It's not the place that you practice it mm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that I would definitely say, but I think it's a good thing for people to explore, you know? Yeah. Just don't, it, it, you know, you need exposure therapy. Like don't push really far outside of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Just like grade it slowly, like start with normal size boulders and then like do like slightly larger boulders and just get comfortable at each step. Don't try to like jump right into, don't like drive to Bishop for the first time and like immediately do the hunk. Uh-huh. You'll get terrified <laughs> and you'll have a bad time. Right. You know? Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at my notes again. I have a whole, po- I have a whole bunch of listener questions for you that we haven't even talked about yet. I know you've looked at these two, so I'm just going to pick a few of the ones that we are both excited to talk about. Okay. <laughs> this one's from uh, Xander. Have you noticed that you have had to make any changes to your training tactics after turning 30? Yes, definitely yes. Um, and you're right, I did look at these, so so I came prepared, of course. Um, because you're a patron, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I am a patron. Yeah, I might Appreciate be you. the biggest nugget nerd who's ever been on the nugget, actually. <laughs> I love it. Um, so I had a I had a double whammy because going into my late twenties and like before I turned thirty, I had like serious digestive problems and like immune problems. So, like even by the time I turned thirty, I had already like kind of started to feel what people say they feel when they turn thirty. Yeah, <laughs> I so had yeah, slowed we, down I, a lot. We don't have to do the whole backstory here, but I if if I remember correctly, you went on a tri- climbing trip to Thailand 
got some like parasite and that's like kind of affected you ever since. I think I just got like standard like TD, you know, bacterial infection. Okay. But the big thing is I had an antibiotic and I took the antibiotic and I had like a really bad reaction to the antibiotic. Oh, okay. Um, so I lost like 30 pounds in three days and I got Whoa. really sick. And I never, I didn't really recover from it and I didn't like take the time to, to get better the way I should have. Um, so that kind of dragged for a few years. And then like by the time I was like 28, 29, I was like really struggling and I had to sort of revisit some stuff to, to make peace with it and kind of come out the other side. So, um, so things I learned in that like low period and some stuff that I've used since then is I consider my time and my energy and my tries like really, really precious. And I think that that goes really well with my like ability to do things fairly on command, you know, or like to know when I'm going to do them and to limit my number of tries. That's become like a by necessity thing. Mm. Um, but it's something that you can practice for sure. So I'm kind of ready to like give 100%, you know, if I'm going to try the boulder or the root, like I'm going to try it. Um, or if I'm just going to like check out a move or something that I'm just going to check out a move. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of a corollary to that is I like try to climb from the ground as much as I can. So visualization is a part of that, but also just like if there's something, if there's some uncertainty that I need to remove or something I need to learn, like I do my best to learn it without like climbing into it every time. Okay. Um, and that goes against the whole like trying really hard from the ground flashing thing, but it's just that part of like, it's, I'm either doing it or I'm not it's doing like either it. Either or, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <clears throat> um, I think that's something that gets, that people do on a boulder more often, but, but I think that gets neglected on a rope a lot like dogging up a route just to try one move. Yeah. Play with new beta or whatever. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Or like if you have an easy section at the end of the route, like I love dogging through the crux and then like linking the whole top as your final stage warm up. or opposite if the beginning is the easy part, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, next thing I wrote is to take your rest really seriously, which feels so redundant because I feel like that gets mentioned in like every single podcast, but it just gets more important as you get older. Mm. Like you, your rest has to be really legit. Um, cause it, it's everything really. Uh, and related to that alcohol is like the recovery killer. That's mm. something I definitely noticed in my early thirties and like still am noticing. And the big thing is like, it's not as fun as it was. Totally. 20s, I feel, I feel you know? that. I feel that. Like the fun part is shorter mm -hmm. and the shitty part is longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just not worth it. Yeah. Really? I, I say that, but like I still I still have a couple of drinks a week, I think most okay. of the time. So yeah, that's good to know. It's fun. It's like social. I mean, it's not like a bad thing. Yeah. But if I'm like keyed in on a project, like for sure, I let that go first. Okay. Other things since my 30s. I, I think in campaigns or like seasons and I really try to like carry stuff forward. So I'll have, so like last year was the year where I was like focused on doing those high ball boulders, right? So I was trying to do like either long boulders or short routes like all year and kind of maintain that like tier of fitness going into this fall. Like I want to try really hard boulders this fall. So I'm like going to try to build up a high degree of strength and build up a high degree of power and do like power boulders and then try to do like something that's hard in that style. You know, mm -hmm. it's like a whole campaign of that thing. So I wouldn't try to like go sport climbing this winter, for instance, because I know that I'm going to be in like a pure power mode and like eventually you have to phase out of that. You can't do the same thing forever, but I just try to like stack my year up in a way where I'm like, okay, what will I have coming out of this season and how can I like use that to my advantage in the next season? Mm -hmm. You know, like roots and high ball boulders like go 
go really well together, for instance, things like that. It's, re it's really interesting because I really like the idea of the nonlinear approach and like hitting on each, you know, of the different energy systems and things like that while also building strength. But I have definitely noticed that most of the high performers that I talk to on the show are, they spend most of their time being very focused on a specific thing that they want to do. And they kind of build their whole life around that. Like that's, that's a very common yeah. trend. The, the nonlinear periodization thing, it's like, it's funny that you, it's funny that you interpret it that way. Cause that's a purely physical interpretation of what I said, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, you, like I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize you. It's just like, it's a, that's an example of this like thing where people jump straight to the physical. Well, it's true though. I mean, you're talking about like focusing on long boulders or short roots, like those, but there's a like, lot more that goes into that than just an energy system. Right. Right. You're climbing for a longer time. You need to visualize more moves. You have to rest more in between tries. Like mm -hmm. you're totally right that there's an energy system involved. Mm -hmm. But what I'm thinking about when I say to, to think my year out in campaigns is more like mindset mm. and like, what am I focused on this year? So like this year I'm focused on doing things that are like kind of long. It honestly never, it never entered my head last year to like train an energy system. Okay. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. If you climb on long stuff, like your energy systems will train themselves. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I hope that didn't like sound. No, not at all. Critical. I just, I just, the observation more is like, I, I, I recognize that like that training approach is probably really smart and really good. And I, I have benefited from it myself. Like, you know, it's like, keep all the different pots like simmering, right? Yeah. Um, not let anything drop off too far because you're so exclusively focused on one thing. And yet a lot of high performers exclusively focus on one thing for long periods of time. So right. I don't even have like a, I'm, I'm just like thinking. No, about it's that. a good point. It's yeah. a contradiction, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I think that that, that, that really illustrates that the bottom bases of the pyramid are the most important. Mm -hmm. Like that, NLP is great. And I have clients who are on NLP and I've done phases where I'm on NLP, like, and I'm usually strength training when these can when I'm in these campaigns that I'm talking about. Yeah. But from a nonlinear periodization for people that are wondering. Yes. What, sorry. Yeah, NLP. Yeah, you're good. So when I, when I, when I set these goals up and I think in these campaigns though, NLP would be something I select like after the fact when I'm like, what campaign makes sense? Oh, maybe I'll do nonlinear periodization for these like a couple months here to mm. just try to like carry that forward. Mm -hmm. That's a secondary thing. To okay. Me. But it is, it's a great tool to employ for sure. Yeah. Um, the last, the last note that I had for this person's question was uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Okay. Really starts to creep in, I think, as we age. Like hmm. we are, we're afraid of our body falling apart. We're uncertain about like what we can do and we doubt ourselves, right? And I think part of forming a good relationship with your aging body is trying to be comfortable with that fear and uncertainty um, and maybe like quash it down a little bit. Hmm. You know, you don't have to be super resistant to it, but it's something that you are going to deal with more as you get older. Yeah. What has helped you deal with that? A lot of the same stuff that we've talked about before, just like embracing, embracing climbing in like non-performance contexts hmm. and taking my rest really seriously. Like I'm a lot less afraid of breaking myself if I'm not pushing really, really hard on the climbing volume. Mm, okay. So, yeah. Stuff like that. And I think meditating would probably be helpful for people who are really struggling with it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's meditating in a climbing context. What about things that, as an extension to Xander's question, what about things that are more traditionally training? 
you know, um, cause you do that as well. You lift some weights, you train on this, yep. on this spray wall, um, you hang board, you know, how have those things changed after 30? I'm doing more of all of them. Okay. Yeah. For me, that, that is probably different than a lot of people. Um, because while I do know a lot about strength and conditioning, I'm not the most conditioned or the most strong person. I ha I was a very straight climber. Like I just wanted to climb for most of my twenties. And I, I did probably didn't even lift weights until I was like, until I hurt my neck. I don't think I had ever seriously lifted weights. That was like 28 mm. or something like that. So I'm like fairly untrained as far as a high level climber goes. So I need to do more of that, like general preparatory fitness throughout the year than most people do. But that's really going to depend person to person. If you're 30 and you've been strength training for 15 years, then you don't need to focus on it as much or spend as much time on it. But if you're like me and maybe you started strength training at 28 or maybe you haven't started strength training, well, there's no better time than right now for sure. And it'll pay dividends when you're 60. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'm going to ask Joe's question. I really like this one and um, it feels relevant to me. I, I can relate to you, Joe. Joe writes, Jesse's pretty active on Climb Harder. That's the Reddit, right? Climb Harder Reddit. Yeah. And I noticed that he is a huge advocate of hip hinges. My question is, at what level of strength does he think you begin to experience diminishing returns? And is it worth training the hinge if you can maintain that level without training it directly? For example, double body weight deadlift comes to mind. And I love this question because... I, I just love this question. I think it's a really, really insightful question. Like, should we keep doing these strength exercises even after we've reached a point where we probably won't benefit from getting stronger at them? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, that that does tie back to what, the, what I just said about how like if you have a high degree of fitness, you probably don't need to worry about it as much. Um, if you're untrained, then it would be more of a focus. I interpret hip hip hinge is definitely right but in a climbing context i like to think of hip extension which is like kind of the same thing but also not on a climbing wall because you're not always necessarily hinging but you are extending at the hip mm -hmm. um i think training it in a sport specific context would remain important even if you are already a highly trained individual so maybe you don't need to spend as much time deadlifting for instance but like if you were going to try a heel hook project then it would probably still benefit you to like practice heel hooking on the wall and extending your hip in that position mm. or like do some more specific exercise where you're like using the that posterior chain but also extending at the hip at the same time yeah so there's like specific situations like that but as a general rule i'd say well there's no general rule there's no like double body weight general rule i don't think it's very different person to person mm -hmm. but generally you know if you're fairly strong in that hip extension pattern then you probably don't need to train it very often Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're maintaining it, you know, I would just check in with it a couple times a year, make sure that your, you know, your levels are like pretty close to what they were the last time you, you did it and do a little phase and maintain. Yeah. Move on to the next thing. Yeah. I think maybe developing range and developing skill would be the right things to do if you're already highly trained because you got to do something with your training time. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're not highly trained, then yeah, you should probably be deadlifting. Preach. Amen. Okay. This is also from Joe. What's one piece of advice Jesse wishes he'd taken earlier when it comes to his climbing progression? I love that question. It's really good. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to answer because I'm not the kind of person to like regret 
you know? So I, there isn't really anything that I'm like, ah, I wish I had done that sooner. But all the quantum leap stuff that we talked about earlier, that's all stuff that like you should jump at the chance to do those things. So those would be like my easy answers, right? Like, yeah, build a wall in your garage and like go on a big trip or like move in your van, you know, quit your job, whatever. <laughs> but I, I read this question earlier because I'm a patron, like you said. And what I wrote down is the mastery is more satisfying than the send. It's worth it to do it right. Mm. Because that is something that has taken me a really long time to come around to in my climbing. And now I've realized that that moment when I realize I can do something really hard or the moment where I, I repeat something easier for like the fifth time and I'm like, there we go, I got it. You know what I mean? That's actually what I want. Mm. It's not just ticking the box. I mean, and to, to go back to imposter syndrome, like that's why the monk, even though it was easier, was so much more satisfying than imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome was like, I did it, but I didn't master it. Mm -hmm. And it's too scary for me to go back and master it. Yeah, That mastery, man, I, I wish I had ta like tapped into that sooner. I think, you know, it just comes at the pace that it comes at, but. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do you think it's possible to achieve that on all your hardest things? I think that's like, you no. know, climbing your limit, I think necessitates being scrappy and just letting it be barbarian. Ugly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Especially sport climbing. But I, I think you'll be a better barbarian if you, <laughs> if you, like have mastery over the easier stuff. I like that, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just, it really is about the climbing experience and the satisfaction. Because for me, there's a, there, was another, there was another question about regressing on projects. And I don't know if you're gonna ask that, but. Um, Let me ask it right now. <laughs> Who asked that one? Let's see. Yeah, this is from Christopher. How do you handle it mentally if you start regressing on a project? So, the, the reason this ties in is because I've realized that the like mastering the thing and like figuring out what to do and how to do it right on the climb, that's what I really, really love. And it makes my projecting process like a lot less stressful because I set little goals for myself. Like I'm going to master this foot sequence or I'm going to like, you know, figure out like which grain I'm going to grab on this hold. And those are very like low key performance goals. They're like low stress. They're things that I can kind of achieve like almost for sure, unless the session is just completely goes off the rails, right? And I all when I'm projecting, I always set really easy goals for that, for myself mm. like that. Um, things like, you know, learning what time the sun hits the wall or like what time the sun hits the boulder or like if there's like an easterly wind, will we feel that at this boulder? <laughs> like those will be things that I'll like write down in my logbook for like wow. today I'm going to like, you know, I'm gonna maybe try to make this link I'm going to like figure out if this shoe works better for this heel hook than this other shoe. I'm going to like see what time the boulder goes in the sun. And if I don't get the other things, I will at least find out what time the boulder goes in the sun because mm -hmm. that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that is part of my goal for the session. And that like enables me to keep my head up really well. That's cool, man. That I feel like is dodging the question a little bit because he's asking what happens if you start to regress. Yeah. And what I'm saying is I try to frame my projecting in a way that I don't feel like I'm regressing. Yeah, that's... That makes sense. Um, but I, I will say like with hard projects, like you have to be ready to be stubborn. That's really, really important. And sometimes regression feels a lot worse than it is. Mm. And you just need to keep on keeping on. Mm. Um, one really big strategy that has worked for me a bunch of times with really hard projects is to go into the project with inertia. So 
um, the boulder I was talking about with the spike, the tough strip spike. Yeah. I had a really good morning of bouldering. I was like out in Redmond bouldering like near Smith, but not at Smith. And I had a client call that afternoon. So I knew I didn't have the whole day. And I like had a good, had a great session, did a couple boulders that were new. One of them was like a hard underclean boulder and my project at Smith was a hard underclean boulder too. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's like promising. I'm like feeling really strong on undercleans right now. I was like, all right, well, oh, well, session's over. I got to go to this client call. Hiked my pads out, packed up the truck. Client texted me and he's like, I can't make it. And I like, I mean, obviously I followed the law and everything, but in my head, I was like, <laughs> like turn the truck around. You know what I mean? Because I felt yeah. so good that day. And I just like drove straight to Smith and I did it in like 30 minutes. Wow. Because I just knew, I just knew I felt good that day. And I've done that before where I've like kind of set myself up by like climbing some intermediate new things and like seeing if the sensations are good. Mm. And if the sensations are good, you go to your project. Mm. And if the ses sensations aren't good, that's it. You did some new boulders that day. Mm. Still a great day, right? So like waiting for that right moment where you have some momentum to go tackle a project and not just like doing the same warm up and then doing the same second stage warm up and then getting on the project again and falling in the same spot again, like change it up get some momentum yeah um the last note i made for that question is and this is like a, a sad one to end on but is no one to walk away like sometimes it's better mm -hmm. to just put that one in the tank oh, that's good go back and try it later yeah 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 that's something yeah i don't know you're not unpopular get, you're not gonna get it right the first time you're gonna you're only gonna know when to walk away by not walking away at the right time and feeling really shitty about the season afterwards. Yeah, nobody wants <laughs> their multi-session project to become a multi-season project, but like it happens. It happens, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, cool, man. This has been amazing, dude. We've, uh, we, I mean, we could go, you and I could talk for like hours more. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, I, and I got several more really good questions from you guys. Thank you so much. I think we should save the rest of them unless you feel really strongly pulled towards any of them. Um, we can hit on those, but I, I think it's been great. Okay. Yeah. I think it's been great. Cause I want to ask you more about your own climbing. Why are you moving to Leavenworth? You've already talked about it, but what are you hoping that will do for your climbing? Yeah, man. I just, I just can't finish work and go try like a really hard boulder here. It pretty much has to be like a first ascent. There are still hard things that I haven't done here for sure. I have more to do, but, uh, I'm, you know, I feel like I've worked my way through a lot of it and it has more to teach me, but I have to invest a lot more time for every lesson. Mm. Whereas like Leavenworth, you know, I've never climbed V13. I haven't even solidified V12. And like in Leavenworth, I'll be able to like finish up my work day and just bust out. And like, I could go do a circuit of easy slabs or I could go try a V12 I've never touched. Mm -hmm. And it's the same amount of effort to get to either of those. And I know it's going to be like clean and chalked up and everything. I don't have to like invent a new boulder just to try hard. Yeah. So yeah. that's really the main reason. That's huge. Yeah. And then also my my fiance is like, she's really psyched to climb up there too. Um, awesome. And she's taking a year off of teaching. So she'll get to like climb her heart out, which is pretty cool. Because um, she's just so busy here. So, And central organ bouldering is not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're I'm, laughing because we both know what it's like to boulder in central Oregon. It's way, I mean, you seem to, yeah, you like it a lot more than I do. I think I, uh, I got burnt out on it pretty quickly living here, but, um, but the stuff that's good is amazing. I mean, it's, yeah. it certainly is. I wanted to ask you, <laughs> I want to ask you about a specific boulder up there. So 
I was just up there. We got to climb together for a day and then I got sick. We were going to climb together for like a week and, um, and do this. And then I got sick and, and couldn't hang out with you. But I had been wanting to shop around and try some V12s in Leavenworth. You're doing the same. And you went and tried one called Tornado Arette. And I just have a bullet here that says yoga block with a question mark. Can you, <laughs> can you tell me why or how you integrated a yoga block into your training for this boulder? Yeah. So I, I've worked with um, Tyler on a few things. Tyler, like Tyler a, Nelson. Yeah, on a couple of like little tweaks and I've been to some of his clinics and stuff. Okay. And he got me kind of turned on to doing like compression isometrics. So I, I won't take credit for it because it's definitely like Tyler was the one who told me to do it, but I will take credit for the yoga block thing. Yeah. Just because I'm lazy. Okay. And like I could do my kettlebell workout in the living room and there's just a yoga block there. And one day I was like, what if I, what would happen? It's like a cork yoga block that's like a foot wide. Uh-huh. And I, for the people listening, I have like really long arms. I have plus four inch ape index. So like narrow compression is where I'm the weakest for sure. Mm. Um, and the tornado, depending on your beta, has like one move where you're kind of T-Rexed. Okay. Um, but the compression is, it's st- the training still works, whether it's like super narrow or super wide, it still helps a little bit. And so I just hold that yoga block in the wide way and I just like squeeze it until the veins pop out of my forehead <laughs> for like 10 seconds and then five seconds off and I'll do like three three of those. It's like one rep. Okay. Um, and it's so awesome. It's just totally auto-regulated, like no weight, nothing to keep track of. You just like try as hard as you possibly can mm-hmm. and it just regulates itself. And I got stronger, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had tried, I had tried the tornado a couple times before, and there's like I a foot it. move where you're just squeezing the bejesus out of these really bad holds, and yeah. the foot is not good, and you have to like get a lot of weight on your arms, which is not my strong suit. And I was like, when I was trying the tornado, I was like, damn, I got stronger at this. This is awesome. All I got to do is like try to kill the yoga block, and I get stronger. <laughs> Such an easy form of training. That's amazing. So imagine for people listening, imagine you're like about to clash together some symbols. Yeah. Pressing on the size of the yoga block. Yeah, or you're trying to like crush a like a Coke can so that it would oh, be yeah. flat, you know? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, like between your hands. So, okay, 10 seconds, five off times three. That's one rep. Yeah, and that's just because climbing a boulder is like around 45 seconds. So I was like, okay, I'll just pick up, you know? Would you do a few rounds of that? Yeah, I'd do like four or five. Okay. Usually no when, when the force drops off and then I'd stop. Okay. You can just kind of tell you're just that third rep is like weak and you're like, well, that's the last set. Yeah. It's not like a deadlift or something where you just like, you know, you know the numbers, right? That's the only thing about auto-regulation is you kind of think you kind of have to feel for it or you mm-hmm. won't try hard enough maybe. Mm-hmm. So, but that's good because you get in tune with what it feels like to try hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing on my list here is a series of questions about your own limitations. Like I, I want to know given this pyramid, given the position of strength in the pyramid near the top and how you talk about yourself as being a weaker climber relative to your climbing ability, what would it take for you to climb V14? 14? Oh yeah. man, I thought you were going to say 13. No, way up. <laughs> we're going big. Like to really quantum leap level up your climbing. That's hard. What is holding you back from that? Is it just physical limitations? Because from my perspective, you've really maxed out. I shouldn't say maxed out. You have really devoted a lot more energy and you've grown a lot more in all these other areas than I, th- than most people I meet, honestly. Thanks, man. Um, most people I meet, even the ones that climb really hard and the ones I talk to on this podcast, I, I think Thank you've you. really invested in those other areas. 
So is it just a strength thing at this point or are there other things? It's never just a strength thing. I knew you were going to say that. I want, yeah. For some reason, I'm like, just admit it, Jesse. <laughs> if I was going to try to climb V14, yeah. strength would be a major factor. But I'll tell you what the very first thing I would need to do is move somewhere that has V14s. And Leavenworth is not going to cut it. It only has two. That's not enough, I don't think. I think I would probably need to be in Colorado. Okay. Because I would need to be somewhere that I could find the V14 that I that was like perfect for me, mm. which means I need a lot of them. So that's step one. I need to uproot my whole life and move somewhere that has the most V14s. And if you're talking about like climbing V14 becomes the main goal in my life, well then, yeah, like I would, I would have to move, right? You just forget all the other like social demands and all you know work and all that other stuff just goes out the window right so it's not super super realistic but there are quite a few v13s in leavenworth mm -hmm. and so that i think is a little bit more practical mm -hmm. and if i if you just press me to answer your question i think serious dedicated strength training under the advice of a very talented coach for probably a couple years with that being my main engagement mm. because if i'm going to climb v14 i don't have 10 years to get strong which means i need to try to do it in a compact amount of time which means it has to be done in a very professional and correct manner mm. so that i don't get hurt that's that's asking a lot and and frankly i don't want to do that it so doesn't you would, sound good you would really put climbing on the back burner i think i would have to yeah yeah, I think at my level of physical body strength would need to go up in a way that just the climbing volume would have to drop some. And I mean, I would need to get better. My technique would need to get better for me to climb V14 too. Hmm. But there's a weird thing that happens. People say strength opens the door for technique, right? Yeah. So I would need to get stronger, I think, in order to like understand what technique I needed to work on to do V14. And that's the same. I'm actually up against that to climb V12 and 13 in Leavenworth. It's part of why I'm moving there. Hmm. So I can like learn what techniques I lack. Because I just can't even answer that question living here. Right. So, but I love that you asked me that because it forces me to really like answer yeah. the hard question, right? Yeah. We like to, we all like to kind of act like um, we want to like give it a hundred thousand percent, right? In the high performance community. Like, yeah, I would do V14 if I could. But like when I really think about what that would probably take for me to try to do that, I don't want to do it. Mm. It's too much. Like I would have to sacrifice so many other things in my life to try to do that. Yeah. Like I think I can climb V12 again and I can like still have a healthy relationship with my fiance and like have a good job and everything. Big bread and, from time to time. Yeah. And maybe I can climb V13. I'm not going to rule it out. 14 is like, that doesn't sound fun at that point. <laughs> maybe I'll climb a couple more 12s and then I'll get back to you about that. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's great. I, I mean, it, it's really interesting because I think until I started doing this, and also I've changed a lot. Like when I was 23 to 27 or 8, I would that was when I was at my most obsessed. Um, and I really felt like I was doing everything I possibly could to, to move the needle, you know, mm -hmm. for myself with my own climbing. And I, I felt like I was willing to do anything. Like if someone had had a better method and had handed it to me, whatever it was, I would have been willing to do it. Now I don't feel that way. And especially like yeah. doing this podcast and interviewing people who are more like that. I'm like, whoo, like that's what it looks like to really want it. I actually don't have that to that degree. Yeah. Um, which is which is a hard, it felt hard actually to learn that for the first time, to start noticing that. 
because a lot of my climbing identity was like, I will do whatever it takes right. to, to reach the goal. But you then know? you find out what it actually takes and you're like, you're like maybe mm. I won't do whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree yeah. with you. It's hard when you learn that for sure. I, I, in a roundabout way, like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't regret things. So like in a roundabout way, I'm happy that I like really hurt my neck and had to like take a serious break from climbing. Because at that point, when I came back to climbing, I was like, fuck, thank God, 5'10", you know, 5'9", like anything. And that made it, that I really remember that because it was mm -hmm. like a grievous injury, right? Mm -hmm. So like, it's easy for me to be like, cool, like, yeah, that'd be amazing if I get back to V12, dude. Are you kidding? That'd be awesome. Like super happy with that. I don't need to kill myself. You hurt your neck after the V12? Uh, no, no, no. I just mean like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm happy no matter where I'm at, basically. Gotcha. Okay. You know? No, I have already clawed back from the neck injury to V12. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's well, never I, as bad as you think. I appreciate you, man. A lot. This has been really fun. Um, I knew this would be, this has been awesome. And I knew it would be because I have always enjoyed our conversations, driving to the crag, driving back. I yeah, I'll save this story, but you you're someone who I it's very easy for me to ask you like vulnerable questions about my own climbing. And I, I think talking to you and, and spending time with you has shown me that I like really reserve that. I don't ask everybody, you know, like I don't trust everyone to give me their feedback, but you're someone who um I respect and who pays attention and you're a good friend and I've learned a lot you've really helped me with some of the feedback that I've gotten when we climbed together at Smith and things like that. So yeah, I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing this and uh, we're, we're going to have to do another one. Dude, thank you. For thank sure. you for saying all that stuff. I want to, can I say some sappy shit too? <laughs> yes. Because I, I know you don't uh, ask the question anymore of like what people are grateful for. Yeah. And I know I've already expressed this to you, but I, I want to say it again. I'm so thankful for the kick in the ass that you gave me in Bishop. And for people listening, I, I hurt my neck maybe eight years ago or, or nine years ago or something like that. I tore a ligament in my neck and I, it was hard to come back from. And a couple years into that recovery process, we were in Bishop with her friend, Charlie, and we were like at dinner, I think. And I was just bitching about feeling old. Mm. I don't even know if I was 30, maybe I was 30. And I was like, not in a good headspace. And you really, you really turned me around. You said some, some, something really simple. I don't know if you really made the impact on you that it did on me, yeah. but you basically said that I, that I was acting like my career was over. And I was like, God, I am. I'm like vocalizing that I've given up. And I, that set me straight, dude. And I, I'm so thankful for that because that one little thing really helped me claw back to some pretty awesome stuff. And God, it's just, the road is so long. And I see that now. And I have this like mindset of abundance. I don't have the rest of my life to climb V14, but I have the rest of my life, like I have a long time to climb double digit boulders, mm. right? Yeah. And to climb like 513 and maybe try to climb 514. Like the road is so long. And I don't know. I just think that we'll all be like astonished at what we can do in another season or another year or like another 10 years. Mm. Like who knows what we'll be able to do, but you, you really set me back on the right path and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you. 
and this podcast, man, everything you do with this, just amazing. So, well, I have, to sh- I have to share mine. Now. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, going to no, share my story. That was so, I'm so happy to know that you. That was man. so, that was so kind of you, man. I really the listeners are like, that. oh my God, this is sappy. Yeah. Another one of my endings that we're going to drag out for 20 minutes, just trying to wrap up. An <laughs> All right. But yeah, so Jesse and I, we were trying a, it's funny to even call it a project. We were trying a link up project at this little crag called Northern Point at Smith. And it's, a really sandbag 12D, the crux of that into a neighboring 13A, the, cru- the crux of that. And it's basically like V7 into V7 without rest. Um, probably a long like V9 power endurance boulder, 13C-ish, something like that. Anyway, there, um, there's a pocket on the 13A crux that is very tight, like it's deep, but it's very tight. And the the thing, as far as, mental stuff and and mindset like the thing i've struggled with the most in my climbing is having a really bad attitude about my finger size because it actually is a factor that affects my climbing quite a lot and you know like if someone's short they might not be able to use the same beta as someone taller and everyone can see that play out in real time it's really obvious but the finger size thing when you can't fit your hold when you can't fit your fingers in the hold or get as deep into it as everyone else. And you're basically using a smaller hold for the same moves. It, it, I've always just felt really frustrated by that. And I just had a bad attitude around it for years. And we were trying this project and I was really struggling because for me, that hold is, I don't know, I can get two fingers in like almost a pad deep and you have to clip off of that. And it just, mm-hmm. I always felt like I couldn't connect. I couldn't get in the hold enough to, to even climb, you know, and we were driving home and you so graciously brought this up and I could tell you were nervous actually to say anything, but you did it anyway, which I really appreciate. And you just said like, look, man, I get it. The finger size thing. It's really frustrating. You can't get all the way in that hold, but you are choosing to try this climb and you can choose your attitude around that hold. You said something like that. And it was just kind of this light bulb moment for me where I realized I am making myself crazy by signing myself up for this objective, this challenge. I want it to be hard. That's why I'm there. That's why we go climbing. And I'm just like going up there and bitching about my fingers not fitting in this fucking pocket. And I've carried that with me ever since, man, because it's still a thing. It makes some climbs harder for me, but like who fucking cares? Like the choice is to keep trying it and accept the challenge that's there yeah, or not. Yeah. Bitching about it is not going to make your fingers any smaller. Exactly. That's actually what you said. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you made me sound really nice. <laughs> oh man. Moral yeah. of the story here, I think is find a climbing partner who will cut through your bullshit. Mm, there it is. Worth its weight in gold. All right. That's it. Thanks everyone for listening. Everyone listening, you should definitely go follow Jesse on Instagram at Coach Fire. I will link to him and the posts that we've been talking about in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. We are definitely going to do another one of these sometime. So send us your questions. If you have questions or feedback or comments or thoughts from this episode, we both love to hear it. Appreciate you guys. And we'll see you next time. Peace out. That's how you do it. Dude. 
Hey friends, before you go, don't forget to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com and get the clippability and durability you deserve. My favorite quick draws are the Petzl Spirits. I just love to have those hanging on my project and you can experience the difference with Petzl. Also, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store. You can download it for free, try it out, and if you love it, consider signing up for Crimped Plus to unlock the entire catalog of workouts, build your own custom training plans, and unlock skill templates that will help you turn those weaknesses into strengths. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store for iOS or Android. And finally, be sure to check out Fizzy Vantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support the tendons and ligaments in my fingers. I really think it helps. Fizzy Vantage sources the highest quality ingredients for all of their products, so you can't go wrong. And if you use code NUGGET15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off your next order. All right, that's it, my friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for this episode. If you want to follow Jesse or find links to his videos, he's got some great links of him doing those high balls that he talked about in this episode. Check it out at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you guys have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it.